Morning, everyone. So glad you are with us. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. There was a big game this morning. So I thought it was going to be awesome to wake up at 3 a.m. <laughs> and have an amazing game on. And, and then it turned out to be the most stressful two hours of my <laughs> life, and I don't like it anymore. Are you supposed to be reading then for the show? No, I'm totally prepped. Oh, totally. With we'll women's see soccer. how that goes. A lot happened overnight. We'll get to the game in a minute from politics and geopolitics to the Women's World Cup, of course. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, August 1st. Today could be charging... Decision day for former President Donald Trump and the federal investigation and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That grand jury will meet just hours from now. And new this morning, Donald Trump's political action committee is almost out of cash. It began last year with more than $100 million. Now it has less than $4 million after paying all those lawyers. And also new this morning, the former president and Joe Biden statistically tied in a new New York Times Siena poll. The 2020 rematch has them both at 43%. Also, the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer expected in court this morning. It marks his first hearing since he initially pleaded not guilty in the murders of three women in 2010. And it was the most stressful two hours of my life. Just moments ago, the U.S. hanging on at the Women's World Cup. It was another tie, this time 0-0 with Portugal. Afterward, one of their former teammates blasting them as arrogant, but they are moving on. Seeing in this morning starts right now. All right, we've said this before, but here we are again. An indictment against former President Donald Trump could come as soon as today in the investigation and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It is Tuesday. So the grand jury in that case may be meeting just hours from now as we learn new information in the other federal investigation into the former president. In that classified documents case, his Mar-a-Lago property manager is out on $100,000 bond after appearing in a Miami courtroom. Carlos de Oliveira is accused of, among other things, telling the club's IT director, quote, the boss wanted surveillance footage deleted. That surveillance video is now in the hands of lawyers for both the defense and the prosecution, according to a new court filing. And it's worth noting, a lot of court cases means a lot of lawyers. And new this morning, we know how much of a dent that's putting into Donald Trump's political war chest. His political action committee, Save America, bleeding cash, only has less than $4 million left in its account after the first six months of the year, down from $105 million at the beginning of last year. The situation appears so desperate, Team Trump clawing back a $60 million donation it made to a pro-Trump super PAC to help pay for those legal fees. But on the political front, a new poll just out this morning shows that Trump is statistically tied with President Joe Biden in a hypothetical rematch of that 2020 race. Both sit at 43% in that New York Times-Siena College poll. A lot to get to. So let's get right to CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Pollens. Uh, Caitlin, we've all been on indictment watch uh, for weeks, several different indictments watching, I think, to some degree. Is there an indication that we could actually get one today? Well, Phil and Poppy, we will see whenever the morning unfolds. And the reason that we will see when the morning unfolds is that it matters when the grand jury meets. Anytime the grand jury in Washington, D.C. has gathered, it means they could be asked at this point in time to approve an indictment against Donald Trump and potentially others. And this is a Tuesday. And Tuesdays is one of the days where we have seen the grand jury meeting regularly, working with the special counsel prosecutors related to January 6th. And so it is 
quite plausible, especially after the last month and a half that Donald Trump has had, that he could be facing another indictment today. Because when you look back, this special counsel's office, Phil and Poppy, they have been able to walk and chew gum at the same time. They have brought the case against Donald Trump in Florida, this indictment in June 8th, where Donald Trump was indicted for the document retention after his presidency. And then within about a month, July 16th, that's when Donald Trump received the target letter in the separate investigation the special counsel is conducting related to January 6th, saying he's very likely to be charged. And then last Thursday, that was a really busy day where the special counsel added more charges against Donald Trump in Florida, at the same time was having a meeting with his defense team, and also the grand jury was in. So we wait to see if the grand jury gathers today and what exactly they will do, what will come there. And all of this is coming at the same time as that case in Florida is progressing. Yep. This co-defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, was just in court yesterday, now out on a $100,000 bond. And he, too, has a lawyer standing next to him in a lot of that video footage that is paid by Donald Trump's uh, political leadership pack. We also learned, speaking of the second case you're talking about, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, that uh, de Oliveira's pegged to, that Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors have had that video now for weeks. What does that tell you what we learned yesterday on that front? Well, the new information that we learned yesterday came in a court filing, and it was a court filing where the Justice Department is saying, we are pr- producing all of the evidence that we've gathered that we mm-hmm. need to turn over to Donald Trump's team. We're giving them that evidence so they can look at it, too, for trial. And they're saying that they did gather additional surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago after they indicted Donald Trump back on June 8th. Now, that's surveillance footage. We don't know exactly what the new footage was that they obtained after June 8th, but there's been a lot of collections of surveillance footage that are going to be evidence in this case, in the case against Carlos de Oliveira alone. We know two episodes uh, that are very likely captured on surveillance tape that they were, they were, there were flashlights that he and another person were carrying in a tunnel looking at the surveillance cameras where they were outside of the storage room where boxes were kept. They also, uh, at one point, he was also walking through the bushes. It's plausible that that is on surveillance tape. But that's not going to be all the evidence in this case. There's going to be a lot of things the Justice Department has, including witness testimony, documents, uh, and many, many other uh, things that we can look forward to at trial that we won't be able to see yet. Yeah, that's a great point, Caitlin. Thanks very much. So those are the federal investigations. The former president is also facing potential indictment on the state level for efforts to overturn the election results in Georgia. That investigation is still ongoing this morning after Trump's legal team tried to derail it, an Atlanta-area judge called the team's filing unnecessary and unfounded after lawyers for Trump tried to get evidence thrown out and the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, disqualified from overseeing this. Willis is preparing for charging decisions sometime we know in the next few weeks. The barriers are already up outside of the courthouse there. And she emailed this warning to county officials, quote, you should stay alert over the month of August and stay safe. She also shared racist and sexualized messages that she has received ahead of this decision. Well, when you focus on all the legal issues the president has, of course, as we noted, that means lawyers are involved, lawyers that the former president and his team and his political committees have been attempting to pay out to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. So if you have a shot, which you could say yesterday was the $40 million reported that has been spent in total on legal fees for the president and his associates, well, now you have a chaser. His campaign political operation has significant 
money issues. And that was laid out in Federal Election Commission filings last night. So let's go through them. The primary joint fundraising committee we're talking about here is Trump's leadership pact, Save America. Now, to put some context on this, last year, at the start of the year, it had $105 million. That's a ton of money. The beginning of this year, $18.3 million. What does he have right now? As of the latest filing that came out last night, less than $4 million. That's hemorrhaging cash. So you say, all right, well, the president has a number of different entities when you have the leadership pack, a, a political action uh, committee, when you have his campaign. So clearly he's got to have money elsewhere, right? Well, look at the total money spent. They pulled in that leadership pack $53 million over the quarter. If you look at the spending between his political operation and its various committees, they spent more than $53 million. If you add in what the super PAC was spending as well, which is not legally allowed to coordinate with the campaign, more than $100 million in spending. There is a money issue right now for the clear front runner in the Republican nomination. Well, when you look at where the legal fees actually came from, you actually break down the numbers here. $21 million based on the joint fundraising committee filing has been spent on legal fees. What does that mean? 70% of the total spend coming out of Save America Pact was, PAC was coming for legal fees. It underscores just how much of a weight this has become for the president's finance operation. Here's the most fascinating part about what's in these FEC filings, though. And I'm not kidding when I say FEC filings can be fascinating. The refunds. We reported yesterday, our team reported yesterday, that according to sources, the Joint Fundraising Committee, which the president and his team do control, had sent or donated $60 million to the super PAC, which legally, legally cannot coordinate with the president or his team. They don't technically have control over it. They have since requested that $60 million back as part of a refund. So Save America gives his, the committee that the president controls, gives $60 million to a super PAC. They have no control over that super PAC, are not supposed to, are not legally allowed to coordinate. They have now asked for that money back, which based on the FEC filing, they have started to get. In installments, so far, $12.3 million has been sent back to Save America PAC as part of a refund. Here's the rub. The super PAC is not allowed to technically coordinate with the political action committee. It is not allowed to coordinate with the campaign. While they are trying to get around this by calling it a refund, there's no precedent for a quote-unquote refund being this large. The Trump campaign says they've done everything according to the law, everything legally, but this is new, this is different, and this is very clearly an effort to try and add liquidity when they have a very clear crunch, despite the fact it's never really been done before. Now, one other thing that's really interesting to pick up from these FEC filings, the donations chart. If you want to chart out how donations have gone, while the legal issues have clearly put a lot of pressure on the campaign and its uh, finance entities when it comes to spending, it's also led to some pretty good boosts in fundraising. Look at how this goes in terms of the fundraising over the course of the first six months of the year. You see the big spikes when Trump was man indicted in Manhattan court, when Trump was arraigned in Manhattan court, when Trump was charged for his handling of classified documents. Not as big as spikes as we saw in that case in New York, but that has been a kind of marker of major fundraising days for the president, more indictments to come, potentially more fundraising, big fundraising days to come, obviously more lawyers and payments to those lawyers to come as well. Poppy? So interesting looking at those charts and where the big donations are. Phil just wanted an excuse to say liquidity, more <laughs> liquidity in there. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst, senior editor for The Atlantic, Ron Brown, CNN senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington. Good morning to you both. So on the liquidity point, yeah. does do numbers like this encourage more donations given how 
widely far ahead Trump is in the polling, or do they discourage it, Ron? Yeah, first of all, I think the macro point of this is there are no campaign finance laws left. I mean, any any limitations have just utterly been shredded. If you have the idea of raising money in unlimited super PAC, you know, levels, and then transferring it back to a political committee that is operating under contribution limits, it just shows how completely this the system has been has been shredded. Money follows success in presidential politics, not the other way around. There may be donors, uh, Republican donors, who feel that Donald Trump is kind of steering their money in the wrong direction. But if they think he is the winner, if he is the likely nominee, they will have no shortage of people lining up uh, to give them money. Conversely, raising money has never been a uh, guarantee of success in presidential politics. There's a long history of candidates from Jeb Bush the Phil Graham, all the way back to John Connolly in 1980, who excited donors, you know, that shiver down the leg that Chris Matthews talked about, um, but never connected uh, with voters. So uh, I, I think that the, the financial aspects of this are very distinct from the electoral. You know, Jessica, I think Ron makes a great point. If, if, he's, if Donald Trump becomes the general election nominee for Republicans, he's not going to have a hard time raising money. The money will come in, the super PAC will raise mm-hmm enormous amount of money and still has, I think, 30 plus million dollars cash on hand right now. I think what I'm trying to figure out right now is you look at all the cross-cutting pressures for the president, both on the legal side, now on the financial side, and yet he's plus 30 in every single poll we see. It's numbers aren't just staying steady. They're rising and everybody else is falling at this point. Does this seem to be a foregone conclusion despite all the pressures? Yeah, I hate to say a foregone conclusion in politics, especially with Donald Trump. I was Trump trying to involved. pin you down on just that so <laughs> no, somebody you, could replay it later. Thank you. No, I, 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 I saw the trap. <laughs> no, I think, you know, with Donald Trump involved, we never know exactly what's going to happen. And I hate to make, you know, these large predictions. But I will say this is someone who has a massive cult of personality. These are there are people, Republican primary voters who will stick with Donald Trump despite anything that happens. We've seen it. There's been indictment after indictment, and there are at least two more that we can expect to come. And I don't think he's going to lose his entire base when these next two indictments come out. Ron, your column this morning hits on exactly this. The headline, why Trump's indictments haven't shattered the deadlock between parties. Let me just read people what was so striking to us from it. These forces face the immovable object of entrenched demographic and geographic divisions that have produced one of the longest periods in American history in which neither party has been able to establish a durable or decisive advantage over the other. You go on to write, the parties now represent coalitions with such divergent visions of America's future that it's unclear what could allow one side to break from the close competition between them. And that includes the prospect of Republicans choosing a presidential nominee who could be shuttling between the campaign trail and the courtroom. Right. You really want to send your column to like everybody who asks. Hey, yeah, <laughs> Why is this happening? Look, uh, you know, we are in an era where the principal dividing line between the parties, uh, between the two coalitions, is whether you welcome or largely fear the way America is changing culturally, demographically, and economically. And those are not divisions that are especially susceptible to being shifted based on current events. And and so you know. I think there are reasons for a public. There, there are some yellow lights flashing about a Donald Trump candidacy in, the, in that New York Times poll today, even though it had them tied. A majority of Americans said he committed serious federal crimes. A majority of Americans said he endangered democracy. But, not but it a is not catering. Republican yeah, primary oh, absolutely voters. not at all. And he, the, the Republican primary voters are buying his basic construct that all of this is an attempt to silence them by going at him. 
uh, by these shadowy forces. But in the larger electorate, we're looking, we're in an era where change is very much at the margins. Um, and while, as I said, there are, you know, Donald Trump only got to 47% last time, it might be hard for him in this environment to get there again. There are enough doubts about Biden and there's enough stability to the basic partisan divide that this is not out of reach for either side again in 2024, despite everything that has happened to him since the 2020 election. Which I think people need to have a better grasp on to some degree. There's a lot of assumptions about what a general would look like or what a rematch would look like. Jessica, uh, before we let you go, the, the his top, Trump's top challenger, Ron DeSantis, uh, who's had a cu- rough couple of weeks, maybe even months to some degree, uh, released his economic plan yesterday. And what was fascinating to me is, besides the fact he wouldn't take questions on anything else but the economic plan at his press conference, which is a great way to invite questions on everything else, um, is there were actually some interesting elements in the plan. What he's done on student loans, his, real, his focus on, on crypto, and it was interesting to me from a, a policy side of things. But I can't fathom that it breaks through in this moment. Is that fair or am I not understanding the dynamic. Yeah, I would agree. It doesn't seem to break through. I mean, the things that we're talking about, you're saying there's all these interesting kind of policy things, but we're talking about the fact that he said we've got to break away from China and, you know, his focus on we've got to go against woke corporations, as he calls them. And so I do think it just kind of seems like another part of his culture, even though this is clearly someone who wants to seem like a serious candidate. He recognizes that people have been saying for you know, this entire candidacy, this is not someone who is ready potentially for the main stage. This is someone who looked like they have flopped repeatedly, you know, as a candidate. And so I think he's trying to say, I have a serious economic message and I don't think it's breaking through. Ron Bradstein, just watching. You don't get to go anywhere. Stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about with you ahead. Also, this new overnight, France and Italy now preparing to evacuate their citizens from the Western African nation of Niger following a military takeover there. And overnight, a building in Moscow struck again by a Ukrainian drone. We're going to have the latest developments ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, officials in France and Italy announced they will begin evacuating citizens from Niger's capital. French officials also announced that they will evacuate their embassy staff. It's been almost a week since the former French colony was taken over via a military coup. Thousands of people backing that coup marched through the streets denouncing France. There have been days of tense and sometimes violent scenes playing out in front of the French embassy. Now, the French foreign ministry said that violence and the closure of Niger's, Niger's airspace leaves French and European citizens without the ability of leaving the country by their own means. Now, much of the international community has condemned the coup. France is denying that it is planning a military intervention to free ousted President Mohamed Bazoum, saying it's, quote, absolutely not true. Joining us now is New York Times Chief Africa Correspondent Declan Walsh. Uh, Declan, you've been doing great reporting on this, both from the broader geopolitical level as well as what's going on on the ground. I think one of the things I'm trying to figure out in talking to U.S. officials yesterday about what they were seeing, uh, they seem to view it as there's a, still a possibility to kind of turn things around uh, and, and get the uh, elected president back into place. Do you think that's still the case? That's right. Yeah, it's a really unusual situation. And usually in these coups, once a couple of days have passed, it's extremely difficult to effectively try and 
engineer a reversal of the coup. But that's what's been happening both from the perspective of the US, France and also regional countries which have been putting huge pressure on this new junta in Niger to try and effectively reverse the coup by freeing President Bazoum who's been in detention for almost a week at this point. As we understand he's still being held at the presidential palace in, in Niamey in the capital. But in another of the sort of unusual aspects of this he seems to have free access to his phone. He's been sending tweets, meeting with visiting leaders um, and holding phone calls with his own officials and with people like Secretary of State Antony, um, Antony Blinken. So it's another sign that this is still a fluid and unresolved situation. One thing you know throughout your reporting is that experts generally agree how hard it is to reverse a coup after just a matter of days. But as Phil noted, the West, and these are the officials he's talked to, also, other experts um, believe that they still can. Tony Blinken over the weekend, the Secretary of State, sort of threatening withholding the significant military and other uh, funding and assistance it has given to Niger if something doesn't change. You have a relatively new but democratic government that was installed there. You have people like Bill and Melinda Gates who had spent time there on stage with the now ousted president. I mean, there was a lot of hope that this time would be different. Does your reporting reflect that at all? That this won't repeat what we've seen in other neighboring nations. I think it's a mark of how significant this coup is seen. There's been a series of coups in the region over the last uh, three years in Guinea, in Burkina Faso, in Mali. In most of those instances, regional and Western countries, after an initial protest, sort of shrugged and effectively have moved on and accepted the situation. Here, they seem to be drawing a red line. And I think from the American perspective, that's because Niger is really seen as a kind of uh, linchpin of the region. Uh, with so many countries falling to coups, you've got Russia's Wagner Group moving into neighboring Mali, helping to fight the militants there. Niger is this country that has been really a democratic outpost. Uh, President Bazoum was elected in a relatively free election a couple of years ago. And of course, it's a country that is host to 1,100 US troops and about 1,500 French troops. There's also two, the Pentagon also has a couple of drone bases that it uses to carry out strikes in Niger and also in the region against groups that are affiliated with Al Qaeda and Islamic State. So I think the U.S. really sees this as uh, a coup that it can't afford to just let to slide. And that's why we're seeing such strenuous efforts to try and roll things back, even though on the ground, the, you know, the, the, junta, and con the junta are making it clear that, that they're going nowhere. Um, and they've issued some very belligerent statements saying that they will not countenance any foreign interference or certainly not a military intervention. Declan Walsh, really appreciate you joining us. We'll continue to follow your reporting. Thank you. Well, X doesn't mark the spot. I like that. Why Twitter's new and glowing logo was just removed from the company's headquarters. An illusion of access. That's a quote. What Hunter Biden's former business partner, Devin Archer, revealed during a closed-door House Oversight Committee meeting. Three House Republican chairmen have announced an investigation into Hunter Biden's plea deal with the Justice Department. Congressman Jim Jordan, James Comer and Jason Smith sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday. They are demanding documents. They're demanding information after a judge rejected a plea deal over Hunter Biden's failure to pay millions of dollars in taxes. The probe comes after one of his former business partners testified behind closed doors on Capitol Hill yesterday as part of the Republican inquiry into Biden's family businesses. 
Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman says Devin Archer told lawmakers then vice, the then vice president's son would occasionally put his father on the speakerphone during business meetings. Here he is. Approximately 20 times over the course of 10 year relationship, um, Hunter may have put his father uh, on the, the phone with any number of different people and they never once spoke about any business dealings. He says, Dan Coleman, that is, that the conversations were casual and included chatting about the weather or just saying hello. But a source tells CNN that Archer testified, again, this is all behind closed doors, that Hunter Biden did, did sell the illusion of access to his father to Washington, really, during these meetings. And he provided no evidence connecting President Biden to his son's foreign business dealings. Ron Brownstein is back also with us, Jessica Washington. Um, so the issue with behind closed doors. Yeah is he said, and mainly he said in yeah, this situation, right. because James Comer, a Republican chair of the Oversight Committee, said when Biden was, this is a quote, vice president of the United States, he joined Hunter Biden's dinners with his foreign business associates in person or by speakerphone 20 times. Devin Archer uh, is under a federal probe for something totally different than this, but right. the House wants to know from him, this committee, what was Hunter Biden doing and how did it tie to his father if it did? You know, Hunter Biden seems to be, from all the evidence, very much in this long lineage of people who tried to trade on their association with powerful people in Washington. But what they the, what the committees have not yet produced is any indication that Joe Biden in any way uh, was involved in his business activities. I mean, even the even the kind of the star witness said that he provided the illusion uh, of access. There's risk here for both. I mean, obviously, none of this looks good for the Biden family. But if you go back to 2022 in an election where a majority of Americans disapproved of Biden's performance and almost 80 percent said the economy was in bad shape, Democrats overperformed precisely because too many voters thought Republicans, the Republican choices were extremists. And going forward with an impeachment on the illusion of access uh, is not, I think, you know, kind of a formula for those 18 Republicans in Biden districts or even the, the, the further circle of Republicans in districts that Trump won only narrowly. Well, and Jessica, I mean, White House officials will give you reams of polling, making clear that investigations into Hunter Biden or these issues specifically are not top of mind for the general American public. Um, and yet, I mean, the fact he was on the phone, to Ron's point, this is something that if you work in Washington, you're very familiar with this type of thing. Lobbyists do it all the time with their former bosses. Family members trade off this on a pretty regular basis. Um, but it looks, it looks bad. And it seems to be contrary to what the president said in terms of he had no conversations with his son about his business whatsoever. My question, my biggest question right now is, does this resonate with anybody outside of the sphere that we kind of all operate in? I think to a certain extent it will resonate with some voters, but I do think this kind of, we have no direct connection to Biden and anything unethical at this point. And so right now we're talking about Hunter Biden, who isn't in the administration. It's not like the Trump kids where they had these close business ties where he brought them into the administration. So I don't think it resonates in the same way that what happened with Jared or Ivanka or the Trump kids does. 
you know, it's more, it may be more generic than yeah. personal. I mean, this is the kind of, this is the kind of reason why people are so, uh, so many voters feel that they, that Washington is not looking out for because their interests, is, is self-dealing. And so Jared Kushner getting $2 billion from the Saudis, mm -hmm. Hunter Biden trading on his father's name. Uh, th this is what they see as kind of happening, I think, broadly over time in both parties. That's sort of why I side there, because I'm thinking if I'm waking up and I'm reading this this morning, I'm thinking, why would you as vice president, if this is true, what Comer's saying, if indeed there were 20 phone calls or in-person uh, presence of Biden as vice president with his son, who's doing business in China and Ukraine with these business associates, I would want to understand that better. I would think that that seems odd. And I wonder if voters will say Trump did it. Biden did it. Apples to apples. I'm not saying they are. What I'm saying is the perception. Uh, as I said in the earlier segment, the divisions in American politics are about much bigger things at this point. I can't see this moving many voters one way or the other. Final thought. I would have to agree. And I know we <laughs> just continuously agree with each other. But yeah, yeah, I think it doesn't. I think it doesn't move that many people because I do think it is different. I think you're right. The divisions are too stark. It's tough politics. with Ron. He says, yeah, yeah he's, he's right all really the time. Oh, what can yeah. I say? Stop with Jessica. <laughs> no, no, I know. It's it's we, don't, we don't want to go through the list of all the mistakes. Thank you. Early. Thanks, and everyone should read your column. Thank it's you. just up on CNN.com, and it really gets into this broader issue in the country. Guys, thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, this morning, the U.S. women's national team settling for a tie in their game against Portugal. But that's good enough to move on to the knockout round. You probably saw her throughout the broadcast. We're going to talk to her. <laughs> the highlights, the two-time FIFA Women's World Cup champion. She looked very nervous during the game. Julie Foudy will join us next. The U.S. Soccer, uh, U.S. women's soccer team will be advancing to the next round of the World Cup after a hard-fought, scoreless draw with Portugal. The reigning world champs looking frustrated as they struggled to maintain possession and repeatedly failed to break through Portugal's uh, rather staunch defense. This is only the second time in World Cup history the U.S. women's team has failed to win their group, finishing this year behind the Netherlands. Joining us now to discuss is TNT soccer analyst, two-time World Cup champion, Julie Foudy. Um, Julie, I'm going to be honest. When I started getting really nervous is when... They kept showing you on screen, and your foot was bobbing up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And I thought, okay, this is not good. Is that an accurate assessment of things? Yeah, I was sitting next to Mia Ham on one shoulder and Joy Fawcett on the other, two 99ers teammates. And we kept like going like, oh, God, especially when it hit the post. Portugal almost scored at the very end of that match. Um, and that would have been it for the United States. So the good news is they went through to the next round. That's at least the good news. Well, now I believe Phil, who said he was watching the match instead of preparing for the show all morning because he saw your foot bobbing. <laughs> but besides that, what is happening here with this team? I mean, you, when we had you on, what was it, last week? There were concerns about how they appeared on the field in terms of performance. You have more concerns now? I do. I do. I, it, it just hasn't clicked. And, and the thing is, I mean, this happens in a tournament. And so the first thing you say as a team is it's great that they got through. They advanced. They clearly wanted to win that group because it meant an easier path. Um, but they got through. But the more concerning thing is for this team, um, and you can see the frustration with them, is there's no cohesion. There's no there's there's no fluidity. Um, they just haven't been clicking. And 
Uh, I mean, we could we could we could get a whiteboard out and really break it down for a long time. But the thing that I keep coming back to is it doesn't feel like there's a lot of chemistry. There's not a lot of confidence and swagger that we normally see with this U.S. team. And so I, I honestly think they need to stop thinking about the X's and O's and just focus on let's just go enjoy this and play and have fun and actually bring some joy back to it. Because right now it's a lot of choppiness and uh, clunkiness is the word I keep coming back to, but it hasn't been looking great. Whiteboarding with Julie Foudy is like my actual dream. <laughs> of course. Um, To that point, you know, I think there's an assumption because of what you guys have built, uh, what you and your teammates and the alums of the the, uh, program have built, that you can flip a switch, right? Like at some point, they're just going to flip the switch and it's all going to turn on. And that didn't happen today. I kind of assumed it would happen in the second half. But what was was most striking is Carly Lloyd, obviously a a world-renowned former uh, World Cup champion, also of the U.S. team, after the game Mm -hmm. said today was just simply uninspiring, disappointing. They don't look fit. They're playing as individuals. It's okay to be confident, but you never want to cross that line of being arrogant. And this is exactly what can come and bite you. Um, Look, Carly Lloyd's not a shrinking violet. Uh, She's never been subtle (laughs) about her opinions, but that was harsh. Do you think that there's something to that? Yeah, I do. I do think there's something to it. I don't agree with the arrogant part. I don't agree that they're arrogant, but they haven't looked inspiring. Uh, They haven't looked like they've had any connections or or chemistry, which I was saying from the top. Uh, But the arrogant part, I disagree with. I think it's more of of a situation where you have 14 players on this team of 23 who are in their first World Cup. So I see a lot of deer in headlights uh, type of play where, um, Typically, these creative, uh, fluid players that you see playing professionally and see playing with the national team um, are bringing more of that creative, fluid style. But you're not seeing any of that. And that happens. And you can see the nerves on this team. And so I think you have that veteran group and you do have, uh, obviously, I just said you have 14 newbies, but you have, you know, nine who have. And some who have played in four World Cups, Megan Rapino, Kelly O'Hara, Alex Morgan, who are saying to the team, look, it hasn't been the prettiest, but we are through as a nation. That's the first job we had to get done. And now, yes, we have Sweden, which is a very good team, but at least we're alive and we're playing. And that's what they're thinking going into this next game. And you start fresh and then you spin it that way, because otherwise you'd be like pulling your hair out going, what's happening here? Um, and I do think they can change things around, but it is concerning how how poor they've looked this tournament. Yeah. Let's see if they can do it. I believe. Do you believe? Of course I do. They're going to flip the switch. Julie. They're going to flip the switch. We believe. <laughs> we believe. We believe. Let's go. Thank Keep you. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Julie. Well, ahead, what our crew saw as they traveled alongside the Ukrainian counteroffensive. One of the hard things for the Ukrainians to understand is quite why the Russians are fighting so hard for here, Neskuchny, and the more recent victory of Staromayorsky down the road. Is it that these are their last lines of defense? Well, no, they think there's far more fighting to be done. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, Russia is calling a second drone strike by Ukraine on a Moscow skyscraper, a terrorist attack. Russia's defense ministry says that it shot down three drones. They say one lost control before crashing into a high-rise tower, the very same building that we showed you that was hit on Sunday. The ministry also says it repelled a Ukrainian drone attack on two patrol ships in the Black Sea. Meantime, at least six people have died in a Russian missile attack on the hometown 
of Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky. Nick Payton Walsh joins us from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, with much more. Nick, good morning to you. Three days, multiple attacks on Moscow. Is this a sign of what is to come? Is this sort of the next phase of this counteroffensive? Yeah, look, it's what Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has said is a sign that the war is gradually returning to Russia's land, being no mistake at all, hitting the same building in the upscale Moscow city district of the capital, a building which houses some government ministries possibly connected to defence. That is a signal, certainly, a signal of Ukraine's capabilities, even though publicly they have not claimed this particular attack. But it is just a fragment, frankly, of the damage inflicted every night upon Ukraine. Sumi to dead, Kharkiv uh, seven dead, and also four dead in Kherson. In just the last 48 hours, the counteroffensive begins to ramp up. Here's what we saw, though, as that counteroffensive pushes forwards near the front lines. The fight so fierce and victory so bitter, there is little left of Staromayorsky to defend it from. No cover for troops, no structures, just the dust of a tiny four-road village, the first gains of Ukraine's renewed full-throttle counter-offensive. So small but symbolic, Russia even claimed Monday, with constant shelling, it had pushed Ukraine out of it again. Something these men, fresh back from that fight, would scoff at. Krivbas, his call sign, fought all the ten days of the assault until the Russians finally fled. Here he is, as shells rain around in the initial advance. When you assault under enemy shelling, he says, you have nowhere to hide. That's the hardest part. They've since tried to assault again twice with small groups. And he fought for here too, Neskuchny the town before it, where the Russians hid 200 troops in the basements, not even leaving for the toilet, so Ukraine attacked with a smaller force. He takes us to where the Russians made their final stand, the school hall and its corridors. There is no love, says the wall. They seem to relish the nothing they brought and left no clues as to why they fought. One of the hard things for the Ukrainians to understand is quite why the Russians are fighting so hard for here, Neskuchny, and the more recent victory of Staromayorsky down the road. Is it that these are their last lines of defense? Well, no. They think there's far more fighting to be done. I hope that when we get through their last line of defense, he says, then they start to run. For now, they still feel there is something behind them. Yeah, we feel support but we are very, very tired. There is so much more ahead to come. Ukraine may have put in its reserves now to the fight, but they face the same Russian brutality. Their tactics haven't changed, he says. They put the Storm Z convicts in front with no communications or information. They stand till the death. I don't understand their motivation or what they're fighting for. Riva carries a new Russian AK-12 as a trophy as he describes the gas they used on him. There was chaotic shooting, he says, to find out where we were. Then the gas. You don't feel it. It moves slow along the ground. 
I was packing my rucksack when I felt burning on my throat and nose. One mine sapper, call sign Volt, is busy telling me how the Russians have started booby-trapping mines, putting a grenade under an anti-tank mine when he's interrupted. Almost endless, the noise of outgoing fire. They are moving, but just not sure how much longer for. Now, the chief of the Russian staff, uh, uh, Karasimov, visited the front lines of Zaporizhia. We're learning from state media today a sign of how vital this is to Moscow as they increasingly in the capital feel under attack. Poppy, Phil? Nick Payton Walsh, extraordinary reporting. Thank you. Well, coming up ahead, what we're learning about a shooting outside a Jewish school in Memphis. Also tributes pouring in for the actor Angus Cloud, who has died at the age of 25. We're hearing from his family. Now, this morning, Hollywood is mourning the loss of two actors. 25-year-old Angus Cloud, a rising star on the HBO drama Euphoria. His family saying, quote, last week he buried his father and struggled with the loss. Also, comedian Paul Rubens, best known as Pee-wee Herman, earning 22 Emmy Awards for Pee-wee's Playhouse. Rubens lost his battle with cancer this year at, age, at 70 years of age. CNN's Chloe Malas joins us now. Uh, Angus Cloud was just an absolute star. And no question about it, despite his youth, despite his kind of uh, narrow resume, because he was so young. Yeah, I mean, actually, the cool story about Angus is that he was walking down the streets of Brooklyn when a casting agent saw him, discovered him, kind of like, you know, those old school stories where you hear about a star that was, like, discovered. And he said he thought it was a joke. And they took him back and had him read for the show. And he was this massive breakout star. Um, like you said, his father recently passed away. And in this statement from the family, they say that they were best friends and they had to go to Ireland last week, bury his father. Now, we don't know the cause of death, but we do know that when 911 was called, uh, he was unresponsive when they arrived to the scene. So more details, I'm sure, to come there, but obviously an outpouring of tributes from his co-stars and all of his fans. Of course, so young. Paul Rubens. So such a sort of part of my childhood. And Me too. So many people. And he had this resurgence. So we grew up with him in the 80s, the early 90s. He had, you know, some issues that caused him to shelve the character in about 1991, 1992. But he brings it back in 2007. And this entire younger fan base gets to know him, especially through social media. And something that I really found touching was that on Instagram, he had prepared a statement for fans to be posted in the wake of his death. And what he wrote was that, I'm sorry, I apologize for not telling you that I was privately battling cancer for the last six years. And some of his friends have now come out and said that he was making his, so sad, he was making his rounds of goodbyes and calling people on the phone last week to tell them that he had been sick. And people are now coming out who were close and sharing those last conversations now. Wow. We'll always have both of their work to remember them. Bye, Chloe. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, CNN This Morning continues right now. 
Trump is predicting that his next indictment is imminent. Any day now is the way he worded it in a new post on social media. We're learning that the surveillance footage that's tied to the new obstruction charges was actually only obtained in recent weeks. And in Georgia, the county judge just rejected efforts by Trump's legal team to toss evidence in that criminal investigation. The work is accomplished. We're ready to go. Business associate of Hunter Biden's testified before a closed door congressional hearing. Devin Archer said that Hunter Biden sold the quote illusion of access to his father. Every day this bribery scandal becomes more credible. There's a lot of smoke, and where there's smoke, there's fire. There is no evidence linking Joe Biden to anything related to Hunter Biden. Russian officials are accusing Ukraine of launching a new wave of drone strikes in Moscow. One of them crashed into a high-rise tower. Ukraine is getting stronger. Gradually, the war is returning to the territory of Russia. Quite why the Russians are fighting so hard for here. Is it that these are their last lines of defense? Well, no, they think there's far more fighting to be done. The wife of suspected serial killer Rex Hurman, revealing that her two adult children cry themselves to sleep, that they no longer feel human. She had no idea any of this was going on or the allegations where her husband was a suspect. I don't know where he spent his money. There's this contrast between Long Island and what we found in the city where he worked. And here's the chance for Morgan from Rapino's pass. The chance is gone. The flick on is dangerous. This is the chance. It's off the post. By the width of a post and the skin of their teeth, the United States have qualified for the round of 16. Phew. If you're waking up, the U.S. women's soccer team moves on in the World Cup. It was a nail-biter, as Phil can tell you, watching it all morning. It was unsettling, frankly, <laughs> uh, because it's all about me and how I feel in the morning. Uh, but it was a good jolt of energy, so I was very awake when I came. And they move on, and they move on. <laughs> and they move on, and that's what matters. Sweden, that is what matters. Yeah, flip the switch. But we also have a lot of big news. We're going to have more on the World Cup later. But first, today could be charging decision day for former President Donald Trump and the federal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It's Tuesday, so the grand jury in that case may be meeting just a few hours from now as we learn new information in the other federal investigation into the ex-president. In the classified documents case, his Mar-a-Lago property manager is now out on a $100,000 bond after appearing in a Miami courtroom. Carlos de Oliveira is accused, among other things, of telling the club's IT director that, quote, the boss wanted surveillance footage deleted. That surveillance video, it's now in the hands of the lawyers for both the defense and prosecution, according to a new court filing. Legal action means legal bills. New this morning, we're seeing just how big those bills are. How much is this costing the former president? Well, his political action committee, Save America, is burning through cash and now has less than $4 million left in its account. That is down from $105 million at the beginning of last year. It does not seem to be hurting Trump politically in the polls. A new poll out this morning shows Trump statistically tied with President Biden in a hypothetical matchup in a general election, 43 and 43 in the New York Times-Siena College poll. Let's get a lot more on what is happening on the legal side. Senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polans joins us. Good morning. Uh, indictment watch now for, for weeks, and it's Tuesday, as Phil said, so the grand jury maybe meeting, um, also waiting for prosecutors to meet with Bernie Kerr. Would that have to happen before potential indictment in this case? Not necessarily, Phil and Poppy. The Justice Department, they are able to do a lot of things, and they also are able to bring an indictment and then continue investigating. So we do know that they are still looking into this close associate of Rudy Giuliani, 
Bernie Carrick. They do want to talk to him. He's going to be talking to them very soon. He's already turned over a great deal of documents. That could happen uh, even after an indictment is filed. And right now, where we sit is that Donald Trump says he believes an indictment is imminent. There is nothing that says that that is incorrect. And that's because this grand jury in Washington that has been looking at January 6th, they have had quite a bit of momentum, especially over the last few weeks. So if you dial back the clock a bit uh, on July 16th. That is when Donald Trump received the target letter from the Justice Department telling him that he was very likely to be indicted for the second time related to this January 6th investigation that federal prosecutors had been conducting using a grand jury that has been meeting in Washington, D.C. for many, many months. That grand jury often meets Tuesdays and Thursdays. So here we are on a Tuesday. If they gather today, they very well could be asked to look at the indictment and to vote on it, to approve it and bring it into the court system as formal charges against the former president. That happened uh, two weeks ago when he got the target letter. Since then, there has been additional witnesses into that grand jury. And then last week, the Trump defense team met. And so a lot has been happening behind the scenes. We're just going to have to see exactly what emerges publicly from the federal court. Caitlin, swing back to the, the Mar-a-Lago case. Um, obviously, we saw the Dale Oliveira arraignment yesterday. Uh, the surveillance video now being in the hands of the prosecution of Trump's defense lawyers. What's your sense of what that footage actually contains? Could that be damning to the former president and his co-defendants? It could be, but we're going to have to see exactly what is revealed at the trial uh, if these particular charges do end up going to trial as they're charged now. So Carlos de Oliveira and Walt Nada, the other co-defendant, they are accused, along with Donald Trump, of trying to uh, talk about and get rid of surveillance footage. Not that the, any surveillance footage that the Trump organization had of that property was actually deleted, but they're charged with wanting to try and take steps to get rid of it because it very well may have captured them moving boxes that had federal records in them when the Justice Department was seeking to get those returned. And that surveillance footage, that's only one piece of the evidence. It from what we can see in the indictment itself, Phil and Poppy, there is a description of De Oliveira and Walt Nada walking with a flashlight through a tunnel to look at surveillance cameras just days after the Trump organization and Donald Trump became aware that they were going to be subpoenaed for all of this surveillance footage. There's also uh, another episode where just a couple days after that, De Oliveira is captured walking through the bushes uh, and then walking back through the bushes on the, pro on the grounds of Mar-a-Lago. So all of that together could be quite substantial, but then there's also very likely witness testimony that could come into play here. Yeah, a, a lot of moving parts. So I was going to say stay on high alert today, Caitlin, but I think you pretty much always are at this point. Uh, great reporting. As always, Caitlin Pollens. All right, let's bring in senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, good morning to you. Um, just talk to us about, catch us up on this 2020 election probe. What's the latest? I guess an indictment could come any day. Yeah, Pop. So, we are clearly in endgame, but the big question is when will we arrive at the end? Now, as it turns out, we have a pretty good example because this same prosecutor has already indicted Donald Trump, of course, in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. So what does that tell us about when we might see a decision on an indictment in the election probe? Well, let's do a little math here. First of all, in the last case and in this case, Jack Smith sent target letters over to Donald Trump. And in the Mar-a-Lago case, he sent that letter on May 19th. The indictment came on June 20th. That's a 20-day lag. Now, in the January 6th case, the target letter went out on July 16th. We are now 16 days in. There does not have to be mathematical precision here, but it can give us a rough sense of where we are. Will there be an indictment? We don't know. We're in the ballpark. 
Now, the other thing that happened at the very end of the other case is the defense lawyers came in and met with DOJ to make this sort of last pitch why you should not indict my client. Last time that meeting happened on June 5th, the indictment came down June 8th. I had to do some hard calculus here. That was three days. And this time, the meeting happened on July 27th. We are now five days after that. So again, what we can safely say is we are in the ballpark. When the end will come, we'll be up to the prosecutors and the grand jury. Can you walk through what potential charges we're looking at here? Yeah, so again, this is as reflected in the target letter that Jack Smith sent to Donald Trump, according to Trump's team. And by the way, last time, the charges in the target letter were similar, but not identical to what charges ended up in the indictment. Here we know that the charges listed in the target letter include conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States and deprivation of civil rights. These tell me that the emphasis is really likely to be on the weeks and days leading up to January 5th, the scheme to try to steal the election. And then the third one is witness tampering. But we have to put, I put an asterisk there on purpose because I actually think it's going to turn out to be different. There is a very broad statute that, yes, covers witness tampering, but also covers obstruction of an official proceeding, which Mm -hmm. would relate to an attempt to stop Congress from counting the electoral Mm -hmm. ballots. So as soon as we get this indictment, let's see how this measures up. Also, who... The team of prosecutors have have and who the grand jury's heard from the witnesses in all of this who Jack Smith talked to that really is a, a key clue, is it not? Yeah, what he talked to one thing I think we can discern from all this is Jack Smith is looking at the seven state strategy, Donald Trump's effort to steal the election in these seven states. We know that they have spoke. DOJ has spoken with various officials from these seven states. Brad Raffensperger mm-hmm. from Georgia, officials from Arizona, the former governor. So they're clearly looking from at this. every state. Yes, they're looking at this through a broad lens. Related to that, the fake elector scheme, the submission of these documents. We know they've spoken with some of the fake electors. They've spoken with Mike Pence, the former vice president. And we know that they've spoken with various people who were at the rally beforehand. Okay. We'll watch. Ellie, thank you very much. Well, you know what the legal issues are. Where there are lawyers, there are expenses. And Trump's political operation for his re-election, they're burning through money quite fast to try and meet those expenses and using some seemingly questionable financial tactics to cover those expenses. Now, according to the FEC filings, Trump started 2022 before any of the indictments came down with a whopping $105 million for his Save America PAC, his Joint Political Action Committee. Now, the same PAC at this moment, based on the filing that arrived last night, less than $4 million in the bank. The campaign is spending more than it's bringing in, even though its various fundraising arms for the former president brought in about $53 million in donations the first six months of the year. It has spent, when you look at the entirety of its committee finance uh, consolation, more than $53 million. In fact, if you add in the super PAC, they spent more than $100 million in the first six months of the year. Also, Trump's leadership PAC, they've spent about $21 million on legal fees for the president and associates in the first six months. If you actually look at what that means, about more than 70% of the total distributions through the first six months of the year. Now, Trump's fundraising entities are trying to cover the costs in any way they can. And this is by far the most fascinating dynamic of this FEC filing, kind of the entire universe of the Trump campaign spend right now. The Political Action Committee transferred 60 or donated $60 million to the Super PAC, Make America Great Again. Now, Super PACs and the political operations of a candidate are not allowed to coordinate. They are not allowed to operate within one another or talk to one another or give one another money. Technically, when it comes to giving it back, the Political Action Committee asked for a refund, a refund of $60 million in total. What we saw in the FEC filing is that they've gotten up to this point $12.3 million in total. That's a larger refund, and to some degree you want to put refund in quotes here, 
that has ever happened before, based at least on my read of FEC filings and refunds up to this point. So the question is, one, how is this happening? Why is it happening? Clearly, we know it's a legal bill problem right now. They have a liquidity issue, both from the campaign and they're going to the super PAC to get money back. But this is something I've never seen before in campaign finance. Um, it's not those, those rules are actually really strong <laughs> to some degree. Right. And the Trump campaign's made clear that they followed everything to the rule of the law. But uh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating all the it way totally around. is. Let's bring in our experts to talk about it. Uh, CNN Flow commentator and anchor of Spectrum News, Errol Lewis, national correspondent for The Washington Post, Bill Bump, Ellie Honig back at the table with us as well. I was saying earlier, it, it is harder for me to return a dress, apparently, Philip, <laughs> than it is to return or ask for 60 million bucks back from an entity, by the way, that is supposed to have no conversations, official ties with any candidate. That's the only rule, I suppose, anymore around PACs and where did it go? Yeah, no, I mean, we're seeing some really innovative uses of PACs. Innovative, you know. Not like that. That's a good sort of a good. Um, uh, You know, Ron DeSantis, for example, is very close with this Never Back Down PAC that has a ton of money as well. Obviously, the advantage for the PACs are that they can raise as much money as they need to. They don't need to report. I mean, they don't have the same contribution limits that the campaigns do. So they raise a ton of money, and then they figure out how they can work with the candidates as much as they can within the bounds of the law. So there's definitely some innovation going on here. The thing that I think is fascinating about this whole Trump scene is that he is both bound by the fact that he has all of these legal bills, but he is also now in this increasingly non-competitive primary, right? Yeah. So he needs to raise a lot of money to pay his legal bills, was anticipating he could continue to be like, hey, we got to win this fight. But now it's like, it's starting to look like a walk, right? I mean, you know, it's that's not over till so it's over, but I think that adds yeah. this layer of problem for him that he wasn't anticipating. Well, and that's a great point because the super PAC, Errol, uh, was designed and has up to this point to the tune of, I think, $23 million, been their TV side spend, right? Like that's what, how they've been attacking Ron DeSantis to the tune of 20 plus million dollars. Now they don't feel like they necessarily need to spend, but they would, even if they win the nomination, have a pretty intense and very expensive general election battle ahead. I guess what I can't figure out is he's going to raise a ton of money no matter what if he's that's the right. nominee. Does this really matter? Is it a, a tangible cash crunch? Oh, no, it, it, it absolutely does matter. I mean, there are uh, people who are not necessarily going to write that second or third or fourth check to the extent that this becomes the main issue. You know, you have Will Hurd has sort of, you know, kind of put it out there for the, the whole campaign to, to sort of look at, which is to say that he's running to stay out of prison. He's, he's raising money to pay his legal bills, that this is a legal case and not necessarily a political campaign. Uh, and there may be some people around the margins who say, you know what, maybe I don't necessarily need to write that next check. Maybe I'll send it to my senator. Maybe I'll send it uh, or, or just uh, sit and wait until the general election. But paying Donald Trump's legal bills is not necessarily going to be uh, a, a viable strategy. I mean, to the extent that he uh, gets in front of rallies and says, this is all about political persecution, you've got to help me out of this. Well, sure, that'll, that'll make some sense up to a certain point, but um, th the cash crunch is going to continue for sure. Uh, and Ellie, it's not just, you know, if he's indicted in this other federal probe, it's what happens in Georgia, which we'll know in the next month, really, month from today, yeah. we, should, we should know. What I thought was so interesting, um, Trump lost in terms of what he wanted, in terms of a dismissal of some evidence, and he wanted Fonnie Willis gone overseeing the Georgia probe. He lost, and in the ruling from this judge yesterday, the Fulton County Superior Court judge, uh, Robert McBurney, he wrote something really interesting that ties to the point that that, that Phil and Errol are making. And, and he said, he talked about Trump's efforts to capitalize on these legal woes, and he said, and for some, quote, being the subject of a criminal investigation can, a la Rumpelstiltskin, be turned into a golden political capital, making it seem more providential 
and problematic. That was striking. Yeah, so that motion was procedurally and legally flawed. I think we, I think I gave it a 0% chance of success on this show, which I don't often do. Thankfully, that turned out to be correct. But, but I'm going di- to differ with the judge. I'm going to take issue with that statement by the judge. There's nothing illegal about politicizing an indictment. You're actually allowed to do that. You're allowed to fundraise off of, I've been indicted and this he's is unjust. He's not saying it's illegal, but he's pointing it out. But That's the, what but was notable But the judge should not me. be the police of manners here. The judge should be worried about the law and conflicts of interest. In fact, Fannie Willis has fundraised the DA yes. off of this case. That is ethically and prior questionable. when she was running. Yes, she has used subpoenas in this case to say, hey, everyone, I just subpoenaed Lindsey Graham, a Republican senator. Donate to me. I think that's an ethical problem. Donald Trump doing what he's doing is distasteful, is perhaps manipulative, as Errol and Phil pointed out, of people who are donating to him who don't quite realize this money's not going for yard signs. It's going for lawyers to make sure people don't flip. But it's not illegal. And I actually think it's beyond the judge's province to get into that. That's interesting. Um, another candidate's raised a ton of money uh, and used to be kind of the uh, totem for quick burn rate was Ron DeSantis to some degree. Um, now he gets to say that guy's spending a lot more than me. Um, <laughs> but he released his economic plan. Uh, you're a fellow nerd, also an Ohio yeah. guy, by the way. Right. Right. So let's point that out. Um, the DeSantis economic plan, a lot of it was very kind of uh, well-known, well-trodden path, Republican conservative policies, particularly Trump-era Republican policies. There's some stuff on crypto that I thought was actually pretty interesting. A student loan position was kind of interesting. I think what's more interesting is I, I don't know that anybody cares. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's, that, to me, is fascinating to go down this route when you're this far down and clearly need to retool your campaign. Does anybody care? Uh, we're showing some of the, the bullet points on the screen right now about a policy proposal. Yeah, no, I, one of the signal moments in Donald Trump's 2015 when he first announced, was he came out, he's on uh, Meet the Press with Chuck Todd in, in August of that year, and Chuck Todd asked him some question. He's just like, look, I, I just don't think people care about policy papers. And he's absolutely right. Like, most voters don't care about these policy papers. And what's really important about DeSantis doing that yesterday is it came out right after the New York Times-Siena College poll, in which it was very clearly made. Like, they asked these questions, like, what do you think of these policies, policies that were on DeSantis at advantage? And everyone's like, yeah, we're always, we think those are great. And then he's losing by 30 points to Donald Trump, right? Yeah. And the question that I think really summarizes it is that both of them were seen as likable by Republicans, but Donald Trump was seen as fun. He wasn't seen as this kind of nerdy, wonky guy. He's like, Donald Trump, he's going to, you know, he's going to, you know, throw bombs at the opponents and, you know, talk and blah, 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 blah. And, and that's what's winning in this race. That's really interesting. Just final word, Errol Lewis, because what I just thought of when you said people don't care about, you know, policy. They did care on foreign policy when Ron DeSantis submitted that questionnaire to Tucker Carlson about Ukraine. They did care. A lot of Republican voters did care that he didn't seem supportive of continuing funding of Ukraine. That was extraordinarily over the top. Uh, but, but I think the point is well taken. You know, if, if Ron DeSantis's argument is essentially, um, you know, Donald Trump never built that wall and made Mexico pay for it, I'll really do it. He missed the entire point, right? The, the wall was a metaphor. People didn't care whether the wall actually got built. They wanted something done about immigration and they wanted somebody to talk in a way that was disruptive of the longstanding three decade long inertia on immigration. And that's what Donald Trump delivered. Ron DeSantis is, is sort of playing the wrong game and, and not winning at that game. Thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate it. New overnight, France and Italy now preparing to evacuate their citizens from Niger after a fiery military takeover. And the wife of the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer now breaking her silence as her husband prepares to face a judge today. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this just in, we're now learning that the first flight evacuating French citizens from Niger is, quote, airborne. 
Earlier this morning, France and Italy announced plans to get their nationals out of the West African nations days after the country's president was overthrown by members of his own presidential guard. CNN's Larry Madowo is live for us in Nairobi. Uh, Larry, what precipitated the actual evacuation? Felt like it had been heading in this direction. Why now? It had been heading in this direction, Phil, especially after Sunday's protest outside the French embassy in Niamey, which turned violent, and the French forces had to use tear gas to disperse the citizens that were trying to break into the embassy. They were smashing windows, throwing um, things into the embassy. And they say because of the situation in Niamey, because of the closure of the airspace, which the, the military junta did after they deposed President Mohamed Bazoum, and the fact that people cannot find their own means to leave the country, they have to do this. The French foreign minister said there's about, about, about a hundred, several hundred French citizens in the country, as well as several hundred European citizens that French forces will be evacuating. They expect this to be over in about 24 hours. And we don't understand if this flight is airborne. Is it leaving Paris heading to Niger or has it taken off from Niger heading back to Paris? We are seeking clarification on that. The situation has escalated pretty quickly because... Overnight, we saw the two neighboring countries of Burkina Faso and Mali say any military intervention in Niger will, t will be equal to an act of war and they will respond. And the third country, Guinea, will also not be enforcing the ECOWAS sanctions that were announced by the regional bloc there. The thing that these four countries have in common, they all have had recent coups, five coups since 2020. So that's a big number. I want to play for you some of these statements from the military juntas in these three countries. Warn that any military intervention against Niger would amount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. The transitional governments of Burkina Faso and Mali invite the living forces to be ready and mobilized, to lend a hand to the people of Niger in these dark hours of Pan-Africanism. The brotherly peoples of Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Guinea aspire to more recognition and respect for their sovereignty. There's major anti-Western sentiment in not just Niger but across the region. So if this does devolve into a military confrontation, it's going to be even more unsafe there. The U.S. has about 1,000 troops involved in counterterrorism operations training Nigerian forces. So far, fail no word on whether American citizens will be evacuated out of Niger. Very fluid situation. Larry Madoa, thanks so much. This morning, an armed man in Memphis was shot by police after attempting to enter a Jewish school and then firing shots outside when he couldn't get in. Police say the suspect fled the scene. They were able to track him down after school officials gave them a photo and a description of the suspect's truck. Congressman Steve Cohen, who represents this area, says his office learned that the shooter is Jewish and a former student of the school. The suspect is in critical condition this morning. Thankfully, no one inside the school was injured. Also today, the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer is set to appear in court for the first time since he pleaded not guilty to the murders. Rex Huerman was accused of killing three women in New York over a decade ago and then ditching their bodies in a now famous Long Island, Island Beach. Today's court appearance comes after last night his wife's lawyer told CNN that investigators completely tore up her family's home during their search for evidence. CNN's Brent Gengrass is live in Riverhead, New York this morning. Brent, what are we expecting from this hearing today? 
Yeah, Phil, this is a status conference hearing, the next step in this legal process. Uh, so we're expecting really the attorneys to go back and forth with discussions as far as evidence is concerned, but really no big headlines to come out of it. Just again, a next step in the process as uh, Hewerman is charged with six, six charges in relation to the murders of those three women whose bodies were found uh, not far from here, more than a decade ago. We're not expecting to hear from Rex Hewerman himself. However, as you said, we did hear uh, from the divorce attorney for his soon-to-be ex-wife. I want you to hear what he said on CNN last night. It's been extremely overwhelming for her and the children trying to piece life back together with what it was two and a half weeks ago. Um, I don't know if they're ever going to return to normalcy, but day by day she's getting better. She needs to show her strength so her children have something to focus on, a strong uh, focal point of their mom being in charge and everything. And she's getting better each day. And that's Hurman's uh, soon-to-be, again, ex-wife, Aza Ellerup's divorce attorney, saying that uh, her life has really just turned chaotic. Remember, she is not considered a suspect in these cases, but she and her children are going back to their Massapequa Park home. If you remember, police were there for nearly two weeks, really just tearing it apart, trying to find evidence and see if anything could relate to the murders that Hurman is charged with and possibly other murders uh, that they are still investigating. And they shared pictures with us of what their home looks like now and they quite literally say that they are trying to piece together their life at this point trying to take an inventory of what police took from their home what they left and sort of get their life back together as far as her communications with rex hewerman her divorce attorney telling us uh, that they have spoken but i know from talking to the sheriff's office that she has not visited him behind bars uh, but uh, her divorce attorney not really giving much insight into what those conversations uh, are but again it does seem like uh, she's just trying to get her life back together at this point and receiving support, actually, from people who live in that community. And also, uh, we're hearing from her divorce attorney from uh, the family of other serial killers who have reached out who have been in a similar position as she has, interestingly enough, guys. All right. From Jen Grass, thank you. Barbenheimer at it again, helping set another record for theaters. The big, giant movie theater chain AMC had its best week ever, they say. And I asked Poppy every morning, is what? she feeling lucky? Because the Mega Millions <laughs> jackpot is more than a billion with a B dollars Ooh. right now. The next drawing, it's set for tonight. I'm excited. I never buy those tickets, but I need to. Hater. I saw both of them in the same day. People are going to the movies. So so many people, I saw Barbie and Oppenheimer Saturday. There was uh, a line. We really haven't stopped talking about it. We're all aware. But there was a line down the block to get into Oppenheimer. I know, I'm very like, jealous. When I, has I'm that happened? Jealous. No, it's great, because movies are awesome. Movies are back. AMC theaters, movie theaters to be specific. They had their best week ever, according to the company. That's thanks to Bob and I, Barbenheimer's. <laughs> Just keep going. No, try it again. Box office blowout. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. AMC said it had its best week of ticket Wait, sales. Why? Because of what? Barbenheimer? Can you just let me read the prompter? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because of Barbie and Oppenheimer's success. Falling off my roof. The company said last weekend was its busiest since the pandemic hit, but the success continued into this weekend, making it the third busiest since 2020, the pandemic, of course. Analysts at Comscore say the two movies have brought in more than a billion dollars worldwide. 
since opening about a week and a half ago. And this just in, the owner of Regal Crown Cinemas, where I spend my money seeing Barbie, emerge from bankruptcy after slashing billions of dollars in debt. UK-based Cineworld, the world's second largest movie theater chain behind AMC, struggled to stay afloat during the pandemic, lost $3 billion, shuttered 51 of its theaters. Now, it says it is ready and fully able to succeed in this dynamic and constantly changing movie industry. You did that. How about that? That was all that? you. They made more money from these movies than the next thing you're going to read. Uh, is it the, it's a lottery, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a lottery. I prefer movies to lottery tickets, <laughs> although it's, one's more expensive than the other. The Mega Millions lottery jackpot, though, has soared to more than a billion dollars. The next drawing is set for tonight. The enormous prize ties wow. the fourth largest Mega Millions jackpot ever. And it comes less than two weeks after somebody in California won the billion-dollar Powerball. CNN's Diane Gallagher is live in Charlotte, North Carolina this morning. Uh, Diane, these jackpots are huge. Huge. Yeah. And it's not your imagination that we're having more and more of these huge jackpots. Both Powerball and Mega Millions added new white balls to that pool, so it's harder to match them all, meaning that we go weeks and weeks and months and months without anybody hitting the jackpot, and they just do nothing but rise. We're at 1.05 billion, yes, with a B again here. Tonight, a drawing. The question is, will it be you, me? Who is going to get this? Well, I've got Paige Peroso with me here. Uh, we're at a Harris Teeter, and, and we've got a lottery machine behind us. You do notice, you said, sort of an uptick in people as these jackpots climb. Absolutely. As the uh, number goes up, we see more and more people checking out our machines here where you can kind of purchase your tickets. Uh, and then, you know, in the morning, we see people stop by. But by tonight, this afternoon, heading into, you know, hours ticking down before the numbers are drawn, we see, you know, lines start to form at this machine. Everyone trying to get their ticket here at Harris Teeter. And, of course, the question for everybody is, do you take the, you know, once a year, 29 payments, or do you do the, uh, are you going to do the cash payment? You know, if I'm the lucky winner, I, I'm not sure. That might be overwhelming at first, but I hope I, you know, I'm going to get my, my ticket here, and uh, fingers crossed for it. So the odds are not necessarily in any of our favor. We're talking one in about 303 million chances of winning this. But of course, if you do take that cash payment, you're looking at about 528 million. Uh, Phil, Poppy, uh, if, if you want to give me some numbers, I can put some in for you here. The Carolinas have been lucky before. South Carolina had the biggest Mega Millions jackpot at about 1.5 billion back in 2018. So you never know. Someone has to win, right? Someone has to win. I feel like Paige uh, seems like she's... Good luck for you. So uh, I look forward to you sharing your winnings with us. Diane, Gall <laughs> Diane Gallagher, thank you so much. I didn't say that. <laughs> Diane, thank you. Well, X no longer marks the spot at Twitter headquarters, at least for now. We'll tell you why that big, bright, blinking sign was dismantled after dozens of complaints. Meanwhile, Twitter is suing a nonprofit group for criticizing its handling of hate speech and misinformation. The CEO of that nonprofit joins us next. This morning, the new X sign on the top of the building, formerly known as Twitter's headquarters, is no longer. It was removed just three days after it went up. The city of San Francisco reprimanded the company for installing the giant sign without a permit and says it received 24 complaints about the sign's structural safety that shined and that it shined on nearby buildings. It comes after owner Elon Musk replaced Twitter's iconic bird logo with an X last week as he continues to rebrand the social media platform. Elon Musk also picking a new legal fight with a nonprofit known for criticizing X, formerly known as Twitter. 
for its handling of hate speech and misinformation. On Monday, X filed a lawsuit against the Center for Countering Digital Hate, claiming the organization has, quote, embarked on a scare campaign to drive away advertisers from the platform. That's what Musk is claiming. X's legal action follows a report from that nonprofit that found that the platform failed to act on 99%, they allege, of Twitter's blue accounts that had posted hate. A lawyer for X first threatened legal action in July in a letter to the CCDH, alleging that the group has made, quote, inflammatory, outrageous, and false or misleading assertions about Twitter and its operations through its reports, which he argued lack scientific rigor. Well, ahead of the lawsuit being filed, the group called the legal threat baseless and said they stand by their research. I should note that Musk has recently called their CEO, who is our next guest, a rat, and called the nonprofit he runs truly evil. Joining us now is the CEO for the Center for Countering Digital Hate, Imran Ahmed. I appreciate your time this morning, and I should note since this overnight, just the last few hours, this lawsuit has been filed. We'll get to the specifics of it in a moment, but what is your response to Musk's attorney, who just says you're wrong to say that about 99% of their blue accounts? He says that your group provides no methodology for its selection or testing of tweets. Well, we've been incredibly transparent with our methodology. In fact, we have it on the website where we where we detail exactly what we did. And that's why they're able to criticize the methodology. We stand by it, of course. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that's just one claim he's made. In fact, he's kind of dropped that claim in the last week. And what he's now saying is that another study that we did that quantified, that put some numbers around the increase in hate, in hate speech on that platform when Mr. Musk took over... Mm-hmm. He's saying that that's the problem now. The truth is that he's been casting around for a reason to blame us Mm -hmm. for his own failings as a CEO, because we all know that when he took over, he put up the bat signal to racists, to misogynists, to homophobes, to anti-Semites, saying Twitter is now a free speech platform. He welcomed them back on. He, He actually reinstated accounts that were suspended for spreading that kind of stuff. And now he's surprised when people are able to quantify that there has been a resulting increase in hate and disinformation on his platform. The the methodology aspect that he's criticizing here, in part, uh, Musk's attorneys, they say that you chose 100 tweets and that that is not representative, for example, of nearly 500 million tweets per day. Can you just explain to our viewers how you come to these findings? So what we did is we took 100 random uh, tweets which we found to contain hate from Twitter Blue accounts. We reported it to the platform using their own reporting tools, crucially. And then we went back and we checked what action was taken. Now, of course, we know that, that Twitter has terms of service. It has community standards. It has rules of its own that we're all meant to abide by. It's our responsibility as users. But we have a reciprocal right, therefore, to expect others to have to abide by them too and for the platform to enforce those rules. What we found was 99 times out of 100, they failed to enforce those rules on Twitter Blue users. Now, that is an extraordinary figure of failure. And Mr. Musk, rather than doing the right thing, which is to go crumbs, what's gone wrong with my platform? What's gone wrong with with the way that we administer it? He's instead... Blaming Ken, the messenger. What is, what is your goal? I mean, you, you put this information out there. Let me put on the screen some other things that your organization um, o- alleges. You have noted that since Musk took over Twitter, tweets containing slurs have risen by 202%. Uh, also, tweets linking LGBTQ plus people to, quote, grooming have more than doubled. Climate denial content and accounts are s- climate 
denial of content and accounts are surging. What is your hope by putting this data out there? Is it that you hope Musk will change how X is run and what it allows on the platform? We just saw he allowed Kanye West back on this week. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, leaving Kanye West aside, I mean, all we do is hold up a mirror to the platform and ask them to consider whether or not they like the reflection they see in it. Never before has one of these social media companies, and we, of course, analyze all social media companies without fear or favor. But when, when others don't like the reflection, they seek to change it. What Mr. Musk has done is said, I'm going to sue the mirror because I don't like what I see inside it. You are- and that, I think, is what is, quite, what is so extraordinary about what's going on right now. You're, you're a nonprofit. Can you afford this lawsuit against, against your company? Because I wonder of other watchdogs out there watching if this might have a chilling effect being sued like this. It will almost certainly have a chilling effect across the civil rights sector. Don't forget, it's not just CCDH that have done this sort of research. The Anti-Defamation League, Colour of Change, the NAACP, so many organisations. But we are right now the tip of the spear when it comes to creating the research that that drives change, that, that, that brings uh, information into the public sphere, that allows people to draw their own conclusions. And Mr. Musk is targeting us mm. as a reason. Of course, it's going to be incredibly expensive. Of course, we are a non-profit. We're small. We rely on public donations. We don't take money from social media companies. We don't take money from governments. So what we rely on is the generosity of philanthropic trusts and the mm. public. And, you know, in the last 24 hours on our website, website counterhate.com. Thousands of people have visited there. So many have left, uh, have given donations. And that's what we're going to need if we're going to survive this. Imran, before I let you go, we did read through the lawsuit again. It came in, in, in the middle of the night, filed in the Northern District of California. I just want to allow you an opportunity to respond to one of the key allegations here they make. Uh, they say that your group scraped data from X's platform in violation of the express terms of the agreement and that they, that your organization convinced an unknown third party to improperly share login credentials and secure, uh, to a secure database that CCDH then accessed to retrieve information without authorization. Your response? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns that they, that they are claiming to get to where they want to get. It sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory to me. I think what's really important to note here is that the reason that organizations like CCDH have to rely on you know, methodologies like we do is because there is no transparency on these platforms. Mr. Musk talks a big game about free speech, but when it comes to transparency, one of the vital elements in any democratic society, he is failing. He's got an F grade. Now, the truth is that we need federal legislation to ensure transparency and accountability for these companies. And until then, the best hope that the public have when it comes to protecting our kids, protecting ourselves, protecting our democracy is organizations like mine, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Imran Ahmed, thank you. Uh, You're welcome back, as, of course, Elon Musk and any representative from Twitter is also welcome on the program. Thank you. My pleasure. Is it actually possible to stop aging or even reverse it? Dr. Sanjay Gupta is breaking down new and popular biohacks. Also, Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin, practiced in his pads for the first time since his cardiac arrest. Great to see him doing well. What he said about it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Many of us hope to live long, healthy lives. There are some, though, who go to extraordinary lengths to achieve that goal. CNN chief medical correspondent is out with a new episode of his podcast, Chasing Life, today, talking all about what is known as biohacking. And we are very lucky in the fact that he's joining us live on set. Uh, Good morning. All right. Good morning. So I, I read most of the transcript of the episode. Um, didn't quite have time to listen to it because I was watching the World Cup this morning. Um, but, but I'm fascinated by this, uh, including your skepticism at the top of it. What is biohacking? So, so biohacking best be described as sort of trying to enhance your natural biology. And the belief is that, look, if you did everything right, how long could you live? And some would say it's around 115 years. So we're probably leaving 35 to 40 years on the table, you know, based on average life expectancy. So what are all the things that we can do to improve that? And you've heard a lot of these things, you know, intermittent fasting, cold plunges, things like that. But there's different ways that people are looking at aging overall. And they sort of break it down in these categories. The, the Dorian Gray approach, which is basically to say that uh, we're going to slow down aging. The, the Wolverine approach, where you're going to reverse aging. And the Peter Pan approach, where aging really never occurs in the first place. So how does biohacking, how do any of those sorts of things influence those types of approaches to aging? That's, that's what it is. It, it's, it's a huge burgeoning field. It's part of, you know, people quantify themselves, measure everything about themselves, and then try to figure out how to enhance their natural biology. That's, that's basically what it is. I assume a big money-making field huge. as well. So huge. to help our viewers not get ripped off, what caught your attention? What do they need to know? Well, first of all, these are the hardest studies to do, as you might imagine, because fundamentally your outcome is, did you live longer or not? And that can take decades. Yeah. And then what do you compare it to? How long do you know you would have lived otherwise, right? So it's, it's really challenging. I will say that there's these various what are, what are called hallmarks of aging. Like what is aging, right? How much your immunity declines, how much inflammation you build up, how many cells you have in your body that aren't working as well. There are ways of measuring aging other than revolutions of planets. And, well, and, and some of these guys are, are like starting to focus in on really specific things. I talked to this, this one aging researcher. He's the head of aging research at, at Einstein. And he specifically talked about a diabetes drug used to target aging. Listen, listen to what he said. Can we say that at this point, that if you take metformin, that you will delay what are often referred to as age-related diseases? Yes, metformin targets the hallmarks of aging. One of the hallmarks of aging is the immune decline. Okay, you take care of the immune decline and the inflammation, and you actually do much, much better. So, yes, metformin is this pill that has a remarkable effect on the hallmarks of aging and protects us from age-related diseases. So what he's basically saying is that this diabetes drug, metformin, mm -hmm. which was FDA approved in 1994 for diabetes, could help target all those hallmarks of aging. Now, it's not FDA approved for that, for aging, but it is interesting. You get a lot of people in this biohacking community who are starting to take metformin wow. specifically in, in the hopes that they're going to live longer and healthier. Um, Separate topic, but I do want your take on it. We saw a remarkable scene, DeMar Hamlin running onto the practice field yesterday yeah. in full pads. He always said he was going to come back. He's back in full pads. Are you surprised? You, you know, in the first couple of days, I think there was a remarkable sort of resuscitation. I mean, that, that was what we saw on that field was incredible. I will say that, uh, you know, the first couple of minutes after someone has a cardiac arrest, probably the most critical. If they survive that, then they actually have a much better chance of, of overall recovery. I mean, survival drops, you know, 7 to 10% every minute someone has not been resuscitated. 
Um, we talked to people from, from the NFL at that point, and they basically said, look, if no underlying cardiac abnormality is identified, then individuals can safely resume training and competition after resuscitation from commotio cordis. They found no other underlying abnormality, so it wasn't that surprising. And the diagnosis was confirmed. I mean, this is, this is what DeMar said. So the diagnosis of pretty much what happened to me was basically commodio cortis. It's a direct blow at a specific point in your heartbeat that causes cardiac arrest. And five to seven seconds later, um, you fall out. And that's pretty much what everyone's seen January 2nd of this year. It's, it's pretty incredible that he's come back, no question, but not a huge surprise. And he should be fine. I mean, the, the likelihood of it happening again, very, very, very low. How wonderful is that? I know. It's a great How story. How wonderful is that? Thank nice you, to tell Sanjay. a good story. Good to see you. President Trump's legal troubles having a real effect on his campaign war chest. His PAC nearly broke after having more than $100 million at the beginning of last year. And the U.S. women narrowly... Moving on to the next round of the World Cup, we have the highlights of just how close the U.S. came to elimination. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. 8 a.m. here out east, 5 a.m. on the West Coast. And there's a lot happening around the world and in the political world, that is for sure. Former President Trump bracing for possibly more indictments, but we are learning that his political action committee has nearly tapped out of money. It had more than a million, $100 million at the start of last year, but now it has less than $4 million. Most of that money went to legal bills for himself and his associates. And the U.S. punching their ticket to the knockout stage of the Women's World Cup. It wasn't pretty, and it was pretty close. Team USA legend Carly Lloyd called the 0-0 draw uninspiring and disappointing. We're going to have the highlights. And the concert goer filing a police report against Cardi B, saying they were struck by the microphone that she threw from the stage. We have new details on what may have happened right before Cardi B was hit with a drink that was thrown at her. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. Good morning, everybody. Brand new this morning. I hope you're all awake at 3 a.m. like we were. The U.S. women's soccer team was playing, and they are now advancing to the next round of the World Cup after a hard-fought, scoreless draw with Portugal. The reigning world champs looking frustrated as they struggled to maintain possession, repeatedly failed to break through Portugal's staunch defense. This is only the second time in World Cup history the U.S. women's team has failed to win their group, finishing behind the Netherlands. Andy Scholes is with us. Uh, Andy, look, we, we aren't used to yeah. seeing this team struggle. What's up? Yeah, well, Phil and Bob, we, we certainly are not used to these kind of performances from the U.S. women's national team. You know, they entered this tournament as the favorites as they tried to become the first team ever to win three straight World Cups. You know, there's good news and bad news after today. The good news is, you know, they made it out of the group stage, which is always the goal at the beginning of a World Cup. The bad news is, though, they haven't shown much chemistry in any of their three games thus far. USA! The U.S. women's national team in an unfamiliar position at the World Cup. We thought it would be an easy win for us, and we thought we'd already be in the, on the road to victory, but tonight's a big game. We support this team. We love them, but uh, just a little anxious. Those anxious feelings would last deep into the match with the U.S. and Portugal tied at zero all the way into the 91st minute when the U.S. would find themselves inches away from elimination. This is the chance. It's off the post. 
Anna Capetta, nearly a heroic goal for Portugal. With the Netherlands beating Vietnam handily, that goal would have doomed the U.S. <laughs> Megan Rapino entering the game in the 61st minute, but was unable to provide a spark. The match would end scoreless, but the result, good enough to earn second place in the group and advance. Yeah, it's tough to be second. We wanted to go through first. I mean, this team gave everything. We just didn't put the ball in the back of the net. Um, and in the last few minutes, we just had to hold it down. We had to um, get the result and move on. Um, and now we look forward. This was the worst performance ever for the U.S. in the group stage, winning just one game. The results, not what U.S. fans were expecting from the two-time defending champs. All I have to say is that the U.S. really needs to get their together because, you know, we, we can't make it through the knockout stages like this. The slate, though, now is wiped clean. It's on to the round of 16 where the U.S. women have never lost. We're thrilled to be going on to the next stage. Um, it's exactly what we wanted out of this match, ultimately, is to have another one. So on to the round of 16. Um, excited to see who we play. Yeah, so getting second in the group is not ideal. You know, now the U.S. will have to more than likely play Sweden on Sunday in that round of 16. And you guys could call Sweden the U.S.'s kryptonite. They've beaten the U.S. in two straight Olympics. Uh, the team will certainly need to play better if they hope to make that run in a historic third straight World Cup title. Next game, uh, Sunday, 5 a.m. Eastern, guys. So you can set that alarm clock a, a little later and can sleep in, considering what we had to do today to watch the game. <laughs> Slightly better. Um, Andy, I want your reaction to what former player and two-time World Cup, Cup uh, women's soccer champion Julie Foudy told us earlier. It, it just hasn't clicked. And, and the thing is, I mean, this happens in a tournament. And so the first thing you say as a team is it's great that they got through. They advanced. The thing that I keep coming back to is it doesn't feel like there's a lot of chemistry. There's not a lot of confidence and swagger that we normally see with this U.S. team. And so I, I honestly think they need to stop thinking about the X's and O's and just focus on let's just go enjoy this and play and have fun and actually bring some joy back to it. What's your take, Andy? Well, I, you know, I, I completely agree. Anytime you score four goals in three matches, you can you, you can definitely say they're lacking chemistry. And as we, you know, Carly Lloyd on the broadcast said the team was uninspiring, disappointing. Now, you do have a lot of new young members on this squad this time around, and maybe they are feeling some of that pressure of hearing, you know, well, they won the last two times. We're going for the three-peat. You know, it's up to you now. But it, the bottom line is, they have to play better. You know, Alex Morgan is going to have to start scoring some goals if the U.S. is going to end up winning their third straight World Cup. And, uh, you know, the, the coach, Vladko Andonovsky, getting a lot of criticism as well. People want to see a better scheme, a better game plan, better substitutions as we move forward. Because now, you know, like we said earlier, there's no margin for error. If they end up playing Sweden, which is more than likely going to happen on Sunday, you can't lose that game. There's no draws. You're going to have to score goals and win everyone hoping they're going to be able to flip the switch. Survive in advance. I'm going to take I'm gonna, the optimist take. They're going to flip yeah. the switch. They might not be cohesive yet, Five but days talent, to figure it talent out. talent on that team is Rock absurd. Down. They just got to play together. Andy Schultz, as always, my friend, thank you. All right. To Russia. Russia calling a second drone strike by Ukraine on a Moscow skyscraper. A terrorist attack this morning. Russia's defense ministry says it shot down three drones, saying one lost control before crashing into a high-rise tower. The very in that very same building that was hit on Sunday. Ministry officials say they also repelled a Ukrainian drone attack on two patrol ships in the Black Sea. 
Meantime, at least six people have died after a Russian missile attack on the hometown of President Volodymyr Zelensky. Nick Payton Walsh joins us again this hour. He is live in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Nick, good morning to you. Is this the next phase of the counteroffensive by Ukraine? Yeah, look, certainly the feeling that perhaps Moscow's elite could have had that this was a war fought by Russia's poor far away from their glass towers. Well, that's definitely being shattered, forgive the metaphor there. This is the second time that the same building housing government agencies, ministries, perhaps close to the defence industry has been hit in just three days. That's clearly no mistake. And while Ukraine is not openly saying they're behind these drone attacks, it is obviously, I think, their message to say that they can hit with pinpoint accuracy parts of Russia's defence infrastructure. Quite a different story, though. Uh, while Russia has called these acts of desperation and acts of terrorism, there's certainly, I think, a feeling amongst the Ukrainian civilians here that it's acts of desperation that they're on the receiving end of. Night after night, civilian targets hit here by Russian barrages. And in fact, while you mentioned Krivy Rick, the hometown of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky being hit now with seven, uh, six dead there and over 70 injured, Kherson, uh, recently liberated from Russian occupying forces that saw four dead from shelling yesterday and just now a hospital there hit where a doctor was killed and a nurse injured. This is just the daily repeat cycle of Russian brutality upon the Ukrainian civilian population here. And while Ukraine's president says that the drone attacks on Russia are a sign that the war is slowly returning to Russian territory, there is still intense fighting uh, along the southern frontier. We saw it ourselves yesterday and the Russian chief of staff, Valery Garasimov, appears to have visited that front line. It's vitally important for Russia's war effort. It's continued presence, frankly, here at all. And those attacks are intensifying. And so are the barrages one against the other across the Ukraine-Russia border. Phil Poppy. Nick Pitt Walsh, thank you very much. Also this morning, a federal grand jury is expected to convene in Washington and former President Trump is bracing himself for yet another possible indictment. Trump posting on Truth Social that he assumes special counsel Jack Smith will indict any day now as part of a long-running 2020 election interference probe. But this investigation is just one of many legal battles uh, Trump is facing along with his associates. And in the classified documents case, his Mar-a-Lago property manager is out on a $100,000 bond after appearing in a Miami courtroom. Carlos Jalaberry, seen there, is accused, among other things, of telling the club's IT director that, quote, the boss wanted surveillance footage deleted. That surveillance video is now in the hands of lawyers for both the defense and prosecution, according to a new court filing. And in Georgia, the district attorney says that she'll decide whether to charge anyone for the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election there by the end of the month. The legal bills for all of these cases for Trump and his associates are really adding up. We're getting a sense of by how much and what a dent it is putting in his campaign war chest. We're learning that his PAC is nearly broke. There's less than $4 million left in its account, down from $105 million. That is a huge change. At the beginning of last year, the situation is so desperate, Team Trump is clawing back a donation it made to a pro-Trump super PAC to help for legal fees whenever, tr whenever Trump has been charged or arraigned. I should note, look at that. See those spikes? That's when he's been charged or arraigned. His donations go up. The question remains, could a third, potentially fourth indictment, if they come, impact his donations in the same way? Let's bring in... Uh, what we may see from the grand jury, they are expected to potentially meet today. Christy Greenberg, she's the former criminal division deputy chief at the Southern District of New York, CNN political commentator and political anchor at Spectrum News. Sarah Lewis is back. Also joining us again, national correspondent for The Washington Post, Philip Bump. Good to have you all. Phil, just what's your response to 
seeing those numbers and the fact that Team Trump had to claw back money it had given to a pro-Trump super PAC. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to spin that as a positive. I mean, the, the thing that you just showed that I'd be most worried about if I were the Trump camp is on that graph where you saw this big surge in donations after the Manhattan indictment that then became a much smaller surge in donations during the indictment for Mar-a-Lago. If that's the pattern, if the pattern is I'm being targeted, give me all of your money, and he gets a lot of money, and then I'm being targeted again, give me more money, and he gets a little less money, that's potentially problematic because he needs to keep raising money. He needs to keep paying these legal bills. He may not need to, you know, put a bunch of ads up against Ron DeSantis as much as he But he has to might. pay the bills. So pay yeah. legal bills. Uh, we're also just learning, you know, we're talking about all the Trump legal issues uh, that he's facing, including the uh, investigation from the special counsel on the 2020 election. Uh, we're learning right now that the grand jury is, in fact, hearing evidence from the special counsel, Jack Smith's investigation, uh, in the effort to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, They're meeting today at the federal courthouse in Washington. We expected them or thought it was a possibility. We now know that they are, according to our reporters on the ground there. Uh, What's happening behind closed doors here? For people that don't understand necessarily this process or haven't been inside of it, what, what should they be thinking is happening? So I expect that the evidence has been submitted to the grand jury. And really, at this point, it's coming down to instructing the grand jurors on what the law is, related to the charges that are in the indictment, explaining how the facts apply to the law, and then asking the grand jurors to vote and seeing before they vote if they have any questions about anything. If they don't have any questions, then expecting the vote. And I expect it will happen today. I think the charges are imminent. Because I think Jack Smith wants to get ahead of Fannie Willis. Fannie Willis has said that she is going to charge in the first two weeks of August. It's This is a packed calendar of trials that Donald Trump is already facing. I think Jack Smith wants to get on that calendar, and he wants to get in before Fannie Willis does. Ostensibly, she in this Georgia state probe wouldn't charge before that August 10th um, hearing that is coming up. So Jack Smith does have a little bit of time here. Right, Errol? Yeah, that's right. And um, these are there's, these are cases where there actually might be some overlapping facts. So the, the order in which they do this sort of matters. And presumably there's been some at least informal communication by the staff. Can you explain that to people, the overlapping facts? Well, uh, look, if the, if the question is whether or not there was a fake electors scheme that uh, high officials, including Donald Trump, were involved in, well, there are some allegations and some evidence that's already been made public that that happened in the case of Georgia. Part of it in Georgia. And presumably the scheme was hatched or at least advanced out of Washington, which is why Jack Smith has it. And so, you know, it, it could be the same scheme. It could be different elements of, the, of, of, a, of a larger scheme. We know that they've talked to people in multiple states. And so there may be people brought in from Michigan or witnesses or, you know, common facts. So this is a big, big deal, which is in part why it's so important that uh, that Jack Smith has this case. Whatever else went on in Georgia, there may be something much larger. And unlike the documents case, which looked pretty straightforward on some level, either, you, you know, you have the evidence of people taking boxes and putting them in the bathroom or you don't. This is a lot more subtle. And, you know, conspiracy cases, these kind of broad cases, you know, it, it gets into what was in somebody's mind, uh, who said what, when did they say it? This is a much more complicated one, and I, I think it'll be really important that they get this right. I think that, in part, is why they've waited so long. Christy, funny, Willis uh, was quoted saying that she hasn't had any interactions with the special counsel's team. Uh, how is there not deconfliction, given some of the overlapping cases? Is that strange to you? 
I was very surprised to hear that she first she said she wouldn't know him if Jack she Smith if he was if right. he was standing next to her, which I assume if she's turned on a television or opened a newspaper, she would know what Jack Smith looked like. So uh, but putting that aside, there needs to be coordination when you have the same witnesses, when you are both calling the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, to testify before your respective grand juries. The prosecutors want to know what. what has been said before to know if there are inconsistencies, things to follow up on. You know, it seems as though they have a lot of the same witnesses. They do have overlapping facts where they're looking at a perfect call, for example. If you're looking at the same conduct, you need to know what the witnesses have said. You also need to coordinate in terms of discovery obligations that you may have down the road, sharing when there are secrecy rules pertaining to grand jury investigations can be complicated. So you need to be in some context to make sure that you're following the rules and you're doing this all appropriately. It's interesting that this comes as the New York Times Siena College poll shows in a hypothetical general election matchup, Trump and Biden totally tied at 43%. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's long been this assumption, particularly on the left, that these indictments would be a game changer. And, you know, we've, you know, for the past eight years, they're we've been saying fun, this could do it. They're a fundraiser. Right. Well, yeah, that, that at the minimum. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we have this polarized uh, political state that we exist in the United States. And Joe Biden's best bet is to run against Donald Trump because Democrats really, really dislike Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is very happy to run against Joe Biden because Republican base really, really dislikes Joe Biden. And that led, leads to this polarized situation. And the fact that Donald I mean, you know, this time Siena Poll College poll that came out yesterday, they asked Republicans, Republican primary voters if they thought that Donald Trump committed felony, precisely zero Donald Trump supporters said they thought he had committed a felony. Yeah. So it doesn't, you know, I mean, so Jack Smith go ahead and indict. The odds that his base are going to accept that that's legitimate are very low. And therefore, the odds that that impacts November are low as well. It feels like we, the pulling of the football by Lucy in terms of folks who don't like Charlie Trump, Brown. This is going to be the one. It's, <laughs> we should probably have learned at this point. When, when you looked into the uh, the numbers for the New York Times Senior poll today related to Biden. It was interesting. I think Democrats are coming home a little bit more, not as much as probably he would like at this point. There's a clear shift uh, back towards him, people kind of understanding that, all right, this is going to be the guy, more or less. What else stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the fact that Democrats now feel slightly more comfortable with Biden is important because the way that he won in 2020 was not because people adored Joe Biden. Right. The reason he won is because he was running against Donald Trump and that everyone had a strong opinion about Donald Trump. And that's why he was elected president. There are people who like Joe Biden. You know, I don't mean to d- diminish that. But that dynamic is still in play for next year. That's hugely important for the Democrats. If it is not Joe, if it is not Donald Trump who they're running against, that makes things up a little bit. It doesn't actually make, you know, mean it's potentially worse for Joe Biden. But that's that's the lineup that they have wanted to see for some time now. And what this shows is that even with that, it still is problematic based on the fact that it's 43, 43. Thank you very much, Phil. Errol, Chrissy, appreciate it. Thanks, guys. We're actually, are we going to show live pictures right now? I think that, yes, live pictures right now of the federal uh, courthouse in Washington, D.C. The grand jury is meeting. We know now there's some expectation it would happen. We now know they uh, have been seen going in. They are meeting behind closed doors. There is a possibility that this could be the day uh, where the indictment is voted on and brought down. Um, Our team obviously is on the ground uh, watching very closely. We'll keep you guys updated. Also this, a concert goer now filing a police report claiming she was struck by a microphone thrown from the stage. Right, you saw that at the Cardi B concert. New details ahead. And two more top-ranking military officials are set to retire this month as Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continues to hold up military promotions. We're going to speak to a military spouse about the real-world impacts his hold is having on military families. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, new this morning, Alabama Republicans are slamming President Biden's decision against moving the U.S. Space Command headquarters to their state from Colorado. The decision comes after months of deliberation and is sure to anger Senator Tommy Tuberville, who is continuing a hold on senior military nominations that is now impacting more than 300 flag and general officers over the Pentagon's abortion policy. Let me get some perspective now from Sarah Strader. She's the executive director of Secure Families Initiatives. She's also a military spouse uh, herself. Sir, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about national security implications. Obviously, the Marine Commandant uh, is now an unopened position or an unfilled position to some degree as well. And I understand that. I definitely want to address that. But I'm mostly interested in military families. I think, full disclosure, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Army brat. Um, I understand what it's like when you're in the middle of a relocation process or in the middle of a promotion. There are schools, there are housing, there are uh, finances to deal with right now. Do you see a tangible effect on the families of these military officers? Oh, absolutely. On the 300 families directly impacted, this is taking folks who have given decades of their life to service and saying, thank you for your service. We're going to hold your career hostage. I mean, to your point, this affects the spouses who have already had to uproot their personal and professional lives over a dozen times. It affects kids who all they want to do is get to the next duty station so they can try out for fall sports. And now in their let's say junior or senior year of high school, they can't even do that. It's attacking the wrong people because these 300 families whose entire lives are uprooted, they don't have control over the policy that the senator is so upset about. And it's so unfair. You know, the counter that we've heard from Senator Tuberville, um, you know, and he had a petition, you guys have a petition uh, that you sent to, to, uh, to both the Senate leadership and Tuberville, but Tuberville has his own petition, or supporters have their own position uh, which says, in quote, by pledging to hold these nominations uh, to the Defense Department until administration officials reverse course, the senator is doing a great service for the American people, including its service members. What's your response to that? Gosh, I don't feel that at all. <laughs> I, it can't be understated the immediate and long lasting negative impact this has had on military families. I mean, families like mine were scared. This has automatically made us look weaker on the global stage, and that makes service members like my husband at higher risk of harm. There's a reason that you have military families, the loved ones of those who are actively serving, this fired up about this issue, because these are our futures and these are our immediate lives. And we're just asking the senator to leave us alone. Uh, the senator has made clear that if the Senate Majority Leader wanted to work through regular order, they could certainly get through all of these nominations. It would take an awfully long time. That would be a divergence from kind of normal course with these types of promotions. Uh, have you talked to Democrats about doing that? Why is that not an option? From what I understand, it's not realistic. It would take years to go through the all of the uh, nominations one by one. But speaking of normal order, I would ask the senator to do the same for his own grandstanding. Rather than hold up these promotions for hostage, work with your colleagues to pass a law that might codify the policy that you're so fired up about. I mean, the fact that the senator hasn't chosen to use normal legislative channels probably indicates he does not have the personal or political support for his grandstanding. Um, before I let you go, can you just walk people through what it's like uh, when you get orders? Uh, I think so few Americans have connection now to military service, to the branches, uh, to the day-to-day -day lives of families. When you receive orders, your spouse receives orders, what happens next? Yeah. 
it's immediate. You immediately start researching the next duty station, trying to look for what neighborhood you want to live in, what kind of house might be available, what school district you want to get to. You start transferring your prescriptions, your medical stuff to a new doctor's office. All of that happens right away because you never know when your orders are going to get escalated. You start saying goodbye to folks back home. You start quitting that old job and looking for your new one. And so to get Partway through that process and then all of a sudden being told you're on an indefinite limbo, you might be stuck in a hotel somewhere. I mean, that's just so exasperating, to say the least. And just to be clear, those orders aren't optional, right? Definitely not. We do not have a geographic self-determination about where we end up. I think that's an important point. Uh, Sarah Strader, I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, really important to hear about the sacrifices that military families make every day uh, to keep our country safe. Phil, great interview. Meantime, House Republicans using testimony from Hunter Biden's former business partner to go after President Biden, what he told lawmakers behind closed doors. That's next. And asylum seekers in New York City spending days camping outside the Roosevelt Hotel Relief Center, which is at capacity where they're live. Next. Happening right now, the grand jury hearing evidence from the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It is meeting. You're looking at live pictures of the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. We'll keep you updated. Also this morning, Hunter Biden's former business partner testified behind closed doors on Capitol Hill to members of the House Oversight Committee. Sources telling CNN that Devin Archer said Hunter Biden put his father on the speakerphone several times during business meetings. Archer also claimed it was an effort to sell what he called, quote, the illusion of access. The committee's chairman, Congressman James Comer, writing in a statement, quote, Devin Archer's testimony today confirms Joe Biden lied to the American people when he said he had no knowledge of his son's business dealings and was not involved. Joe Biden was the brand that his son sold around the world to enrich the Biden family. Now, Comer also accused Joe Biden of lying about his family's business dealings and his own involvement, pledging that his panel will continue to investigate. The White House responded to that. Here's their quote. House Republicans keep promising bombshell evidence to support their ridiculous attacks against the president. But time after time, they keep failing to produce any. Kara Scannell has been following this all. She's here. I was saying earlier in the show, this one of the issues with closed door is that it literally comes out and it's, you know, he said, he said, or he said, she said. What do we know? Right. I mean, so we've been trying, Zach Cohen and I have been trying to decipher what actually the testimony was. And what we learned is that, you know, this was the House Republicans. They brought him in as kind of their big witness to say that the president, now President Biden was aware of Hunter Biden's business dealings. And what Archer testified to, according to multiple sources from all different sides, um, is that Archer was Hunter Biden's business partner for a decade. And he said over that period, Hunter Biden would call his father every single day. But he recalled about 20 times that he, Hunter Biden, called Joe Biden uh, when he was in the presence of business executives. One time was when they were having dinner in Paris. One time, then Vice President Biden stopped into a dinner in Washington, D.C. But Archer testified that they never discussed business dealings. So this was not the smoking gun testimony that Republicans may have been looking for. And and and, and that is kind of a key thing here that the Democrats have seized on. Uh, one of the Democrats who attended that meeting yesterday was Dan Goldman from New York. He said that this was this whole Republican investigation is a waste of time. And here's more of what he said. Joe Biden had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings, derived no benefit from it, received no money, and did not know about anything that Hunter Biden was doing. The fact that he spoke to 
business associates of Hunter Biden to say hello, to have small talk, casual conversation is not evidence that Joe Biden or Hunter Biden did anything wrong. Now, Archer was also asked about this FBI Form 1023. That was the tip sheet that Senator Grassley made public. And he said in that tip sheet, the tipster said that there were $5 million payments that were made to the Bidens and suspicions of bribery. Now, Archer said that he was unaware of any $5 million payment and that he said that these allegations of bribery were not credible. Now, his attorney, Matthew Schwartz, had said that, you know, it was clear to them that both sides were going to be claiming victory here, but all Archer did was answer these questions honestly. Okay, we'll follow this. Kara, thank you. So this morning, a Cardi B concert goer has filed a police report. She claims she was struck by an item thrown from the stage at the most recent concert. Police say no arrest or citation has been issued. Video does show Cardi B performing in Las Vegas on Saturday when an audience member threw a drink toward the stage. That's when Cardi B quickly reacts, throws her microphone into the audience. In a different clip from that show, Cardi B and her DJ ask the audience to splash her with water, just not on her face. But this is the latest in a slew of incidents where artists have had objects thrown at them while on stage. CNN has reached out to a representative for Cardi B. And also, we've reached out to the Clark County District Attorney. Well, this morning, asylum seekers in New York City are spending days camping outside the Roosevelt Hotel Relief Center, which is at capacity. They're being told that there's no no more room and that the wait could be anywhere from two days to two weeks CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now. Omar, is there another relief center to help them? Well, at this point, the people that are being told, regardless of the wait times they're being told, they are staying in line to try to get access to either legal services, medical services, or be connected with a shelter if needed. Now, uh, you can see the line actually uh, just behind me here. It's formed outside the Roosevelt Hotel uh, here in Manhattan. And just talking to one or two of them uh, on my way over here, these are people that have been here uh, for days. This is the city's first asylum seeker arrivals center. So it connects some of these migrants with so those services that I mentioned, but is also part of what has been a tens of thousands worth of migrants that have come here to New York City since last spring. Uh, the latest uh, from the New York City mayor, Eric Adams, has said that they have processed uh, more than 90,000 migrants since last spring. But right now, they are at a point where places like this are at capacity and they are trying to figure out what to do as far as their next steps. And Mayor Eric Adams has said it's not just about getting more funding to help with the processing, but also about speeding up the, the work authorization process to try and get some of these migrants processed and to start, as Mayor Adams has put, their American dream. Now, obviously, the scenes of these migrants laying out in the middle of the street and I mean, folks are going to rush out or going to their jobs in the middle of rush hour here in New York City like normal while migrants are literally sleeping and staying on the sidewalk here. Uh, the Legal Aid Society has taken note of that image, as many here have done as well. It's hard to ignore as you walk by saying the denying new arrivals placement and forcing people to languish on local streets is cruel and runs afoul of a range of court orders and local laws. And for his part, Mayor Adams says they are still working through a potential next phase here. Uh, but for now, he says they've run out of room and that he does not want it to get to a point where we're seeing tents set up up and down 
uh, the streets. But again, these migrants are waiting in line to try to get registered for either shelter or other forms of service so that they can begin the reason they likely came here in the first place in the United States, their pursuit of the American dream. Omar Jimenez, thank you. Police say an armed man fired rounds outside a Jewish school in Tennessee after he was unable to get inside. What we're learning about that suspect next. And an American woman arrested in the Bahamas for allegedly conspiring to kill her husband three months after filing for divorce. We're learning more about a gunman who tried to walk into a Jewish school in Memphis yesterday afternoon. Tennessee Congressman Steve Cohen says the suspect is Jewish and used to be a student there. Police say he tried to walk into the school yesterday and when he wasn't able to get in, started shooting outside. CNN's Ryan Young is following the details. Ryan, how were authorities able to stop this? Yeah, Phil, this is a scary situation. You think about the security protocols that school had in place may have saved some lives. Apparently, the student, former student, tried to show up to the school, tried to get inside. That did not happen because of the doors that were in place. Then he started shooting at those doors. And then from what we're told from there, police uh, were called and the school was able to send his surveillance photo to police. And so they were able to get that out very quickly. They knew he was in a truck. They started looking for him. At some point, he was pulled over by police got out with a handgun apparently in his hand, and then shots were fired. Take a listen to the assistant police chief talking about the situation yesterday. The suspect did try to enter the building armed with a gun. When he could not gain entry, he fired shots outside the school. Thankfully, that school had a great safety procedure and process in place and avoided anyone being harmed or injured at that scene. Yeah, this has happened at Margolin Hebrew Academy. That's in East Memphis. As you can understand, security has been uh, placed on high alert after this. The FBI, the TBI, the Memphis Police Department are all investigating this situation. But you had this person show up to the school, try to gain entry, and thanks to those security protocols, was not able to get in. Now, we also found out the school doesn't start for another couple of weeks, but at the same time, with all this heightened awareness of people with guns showing up to schools, you understand why people are taking a sigh of relief at this point. Still a big investigation to figure out exactly what the motivation was for this person to show up at the school. Phil? Yeah, no question. Ryan Young, thank you. So CNN is learning more about the American woman who's been arrested and charged for conspiring to kill her husband in the Bahamas after the couple filed for divorce in April. Prosecutors allege that Lindsay Shiver conspired with two Bahamian natives, and a source tells CNN that local police were able to foil that plan. Nick Valencia is following the story. He joins us now. Wow. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. What makes this story even crazier is just how police were able to successfully foil this plot. A Bahamian police source tells me that they were investigating a break-in at a local business when they recovered a phone there, and they were uh, gathering evidence on that phone when they stumbled across written messages that indicated that this sinister plot existed. It's not entirely clear exactly who that phone belonged to. Police wouldn't elaborate on details. We do know, though, that two local Bahamian men were taken into custody, and according to prosecutors, they agreed to carry carry out a murder-for-hire plot on the husband of American Lindsay Shiver. Uh, All three suspects were in court on Friday. They were not required uh, to enter any plea, but they were told that if they were trying to get bail, that they had to appeal to the Supreme Court on the island. Social media seeming to uh, belong to Lindsay Shiver shows that she and her husband attended Auburn University, where her husband played football there in the early 2000s. And social media, we know it's a highlight reel, but it appeared to show that this family was a happy, church-going family. But it was in April that her husband filed for divorce from Lindsay Shiver, citing uh, her adulterous conduct 
conduct as the reason for the divorce. It was the next day Lindsay Shiver also filed uh, for divorce. We have reached out to the attorneys for those divorce proceedings, Poppy. And uh, meanwhile, their next court date, those suspects in the Bahamas, is October 5th. Poppy? Okay. Nick Valencia, thank you. You bet. Well, the record-breaking heat this summer is continuing in parts of the South. 60 million Americans could soon feel triple-digit temperatures again. Harry Enten is here. <laughs> Get the man a fan. Yeah, well, no, okay, time out. Go to break. We'll be back in a minute Woo. with this morning's number. Well, happening right now, the grand jury hearing evidence from the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It's meeting in Washington, D.C. You're seeing live pictures right now of that federal courthouse. The relentless, record-long extreme heat streaks have gotten worse every day. And though it might be letting up in some parts of the country, like here in New York, by the way, it's been glorious, it is still dangerous in the South. It's not going anywhere. Extreme temperatures expected to hit the South even harder this week. 40 million people under heat alerts this morning in parts of the South. 60 million folks could see triple-digit temperatures. And over the next week, about half the population We'll see temps above 90. Harry Anton, our senior data reporter, is here. Record-breaking. Worst, Record worst ever? Worst ever. All right. So this morning's number is 29. Why is it 29? Because the globe's hottest days on record, 29 consecutive in July 2023, were hotter than any previously, any previous day ever. Now, we only have records dating back since 1979, at least according to the University of Maine, but most climate uh, scientists believe that it's likely the hottest 29 days on record, hotter than any before. And obviously, July was the hottest month on record. Now, we're talking globe, but let's take it stateside. And we can see we had the hottest month ever, basically in places all over this country. Phoenix, of course, with all those days where the high temperature was 110 degrees or above. We'll go to the south, Miami, Florida, hottest on ever. How about the northeast, all the way up in Maine, Caribou, Maine, the hottest on record. So from the southwest to the south to the northeast, a number of places with their hottest months on record. But obviously, Harry, given the unity uh, that defines America right now, yeah, yeah, writ right. large, everybody agrees kind of on the genesis of Can't we just agree heat. that yeah. it's hot? Yeah, right? Uh, apparently, in this country? Apparently, we can't agree that it's hot. Wait, what? So <laughs> this, this is an amazing question oh my that gosh. the CBS News YouGov poll asked. My area has had unusually high temperatures recently. And what we see here is 80% of Biden voters say so. But look at Trump voters. Just 43% of Trump voters say so. So now all of a sudden, our partisan divide is basically filtering down and coloring our perceptions of the weather. And I'll note that this difference held in every region of the country. So in the Northeast, the Biden voters are more likely to say it was unusually warm than Trump voters. In the Southeast, the same thing. So basically, politics is entering our weather at this point. I never thought I'd see anything like this. It's double the percentage of Biden voters than Trump voters who said it was unusually warm. Unbelievable, wow. right? Wow. How about this? Effects of global warming have begun. If we go back since to 1997, what we see is just slightly more Republicans than Democrats said the effects of global warming had begun. Look at where we are now. Democrats almost doubled. Republicans actually went down on the effects of global warming have become Partisan divides in weather and climate. It's everywhere, folks. It is everywhere. So telling those numbers. Yeah. Harry, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, bud. All right. A zoo in China is forced to tell people, the public, that its bears were in fact bears and not humans in disguise. We're going to tell you why they had to make that statement next. 
An 80-year-old lawmaker getting her first tattoo. Why she chose now to get inked up. Next. I want to be clear, what we're about to show you is definitely a bear and definitely not a human in disguise. That's at least according to the official denial by a zoo in eastern China. No, seriously, that's a bear. This video of a sun bear standing on its hind legs, it went viral. The zoo received so much attention that they released a statement refuting the claims that their sun bears are really just people dressed in bear costumes, which I actually get after watching the video. The statement written in the animal's voice reads, quote, I got a call after work yesterday from the head of the zoo asking if I was being lazy and skipped work today and found a human to fill in. Let me reiterate, I am a sun bear. The zoo says that people just don't understand the species. The endangered sun bear, bear is the smallest known species Aww. of bear characterized by its crescent-shaped amber fur on its chest. Cute. It's cute. Funny statement, too. Connecticut Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro always stands out on Capitol Hill with her colorful hair and fashion. Now the 80-year-old lawmaker and grandmother is adding tattoos to the mix. She says her granddaughter wanted to get a tattoo to mark her 18th birthday. So what did the congresswoman do? She was in. In a statement, DeLauro says that her granddaughter is going off to college in the fall, and this was to make their bond even stronger. I love that. DeLauro said, quote, I have four more grandkids who still haven't turned 18, so be on the lookout for new ink. I love it. It's also like very on brand. She's a very eccentric, very uh, talented congresswoman, but very on brand. I love, uh, I love that she put out a statement tied to it. Uh, shout These out to days. Politico's The Huddle. They scooped this last week, but she love put out that. a statement. Love You'll do that. that, right? When your kids are like, Tattoo? get tattoos. Only one of us at this table has tattoos, and it is not me. Wow. We'll see you here tomorrow. See you in the new Centralist now. Have a good one, guys. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.